folks. Welcome to Infinite Pulp. You know what time it is. It's spooky season, and I'm very, very excited about that. We are bringing you a month-long series of all things spooky. So here's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about pumpkins, candy corn, pumpkin spice lattes, you know, what to wear during the fall, the all the autumn and fall season, you know, all of that. We're not talking about any of that stuff. That's garbage. We're not going to do any of that. We're going to start off with horror movies and really dig into the creepiest fictional characters. We may have a battle royale for horror movie villains later on. We're definitely going to talk about our top five favorite horror movies, which is what we're doing today. And I have something exciting to share for you. We have two first time guests on today. And let me give you a little background before I get these guys introduced to you. Picture this. A small, danky Orlando apartment. Three people. Horror movies. Hours upon hours of dialogue and watching. And honestly, I would not be into horror if it wasn't for these two folks. And I can really trace my roots back to my love of this genre because of these two. So I'm really excited to get these folks on my podcast. And I definitely want to talk about those tattoos that you got, Fabi, because that's going to be awesome. And that's right. We have Fabi on here. You just heard her voice. And then you also have Matt. He's with us today. Hello, everybody. And they are my... My horror buffs. I'm really excited to have both of you on. So we don't oh, have thanks for having us. To, yeah, thanks for being on. I really appreciate it. Really, I wasn't sure how we were going to do horror without you guys. So Absolutely. I'm glad we, got, glad we got this to work out. What we don't have today, unfortunately, is Max. We don't have Max. Max is really saddened. Horror is one of his favorite genre of films. And he really, really wanted to be on with us tonight. However, he had some... Not, not even issues. They're just things he needed to take care of tonight that kind of just popped up of the last second and he wasn't able to record for us. And we really couldn't find a good time to schedule around it. So he's going to be absent this episode. But him and I will have a little dialogue next week about um, what his top five favorite movies are and um, what he would have put on the list if if he would have been here tonight. And so Max has generously sent me his movie list. And so I'll go through that in a little bit just to kind of say this is what Max would have had. And then him and I will actually go through and discuss it next week on the pre-show for you guys. Before we get into it, though, before we get into anything, how's everybody doing? So far, so good. The sun has set on the east side, so our air conditioning is working at full operation. (laughs) That's wonderful. I had to turn my air conditioner off because it's too loud when I run into my room. And it's currently 90 degrees in Oregon, and the sun is beating down, and it feels like I'm sitting outside in Florida right now. So this feels really like home. (laughs) Good. Beautiful. Good. I'm glad that you're sweating and thinking about Orlando. (laughs) It's appropriate. Sweating in Disney is really the only things that Orlando's good for. Yes. Nothing's changed. (laughs) No, we're still sweating. (laughs) (laughs) Savvy, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great, thanks. I um, had work, came home, worked out, ate. Actually, we had Taco Bell, so that was a fun little treat. And now oh, we're talking yeah. to you. Oh, yeah. I need I need to know, what you guys have for Taco Bell? Oh, I try to be good. I had one cheesy gordita crunch. That was it. It was hard, but I did it. That, that's so difficult. How do you go to Taco I Bell and not get at least four items? Well, the only reason why is because it is Matthew's birthday this weekend, and we're going to be having 
a bunch of sweets and a bunch of bad food. So <laughs> I had to choose between Thursday was the beginning of the weekend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is the beginning of the weekend. Absolutely. It's it going to is- be filled with pumpkin spice donuts and cookie cake. No, not cookie cake. Ice cream cake and brisket nope. and five guys or Culver's. Whatever we decide at the moment. Yes, we yeah. recently got a pellet smoker. And Ooh. we have done pulled pork, burnt ends, and chicken wings in the past. But this is our first time experimenting with uh, brisket. So um, there is a 16-hour smoke recipe that we found. So that's what we are going to be tackling this weekend. Oh, I and love that. If it, I'm sure it'll work out great. And if it doesn't, we live in Orlando. We're surrounded by food. <laughs> you can just go to Four Rivers if you want to. Right. Exactly. Actually, I have a question for you on, on the birthday thing. So, so no cookie cake this year? Or, or Fabi, you just trying to hold the surprise? So cookie cake was done for Chris's birthday. And we decided, seeing as it was just a few weeks ago, uh, Chris is my brother, for those of you listening. Um, we got a cookie cake for his birthday. So for my birthday, we will be doing ice cream cake. Got to get those crunchies in. Yeah. <laughs> ice cream. I love ice cream cake. It's so good. Yeah. Oh, it's yes. delicious. Dude, Somebody yeah, reminded absolutely. me today that there is a cold stone um, ice cream cake that is delicious. So maybe we can oh. save that for next year for you, Matt. That does sound like a good idea. <laughs> it does sound really good. And that's it's turning the heads right now. It's like, if we don't have the cookie cake already, maybe we should do cold stone now. Right. Next year. Exactly. Right. Oh, that sounds awesome. That's cool. I didn't know it was your birthday. So we're going to say happy birthday. By the time this podcast posts, it's going to be like a month past and you already have had eaten and done all that stuff. But we're still going to celebrate. Oh, absolutely. 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 Well, Sweet. thank you, man. You're welcome. I am so excited for this. I am amped up on two cups of coffee, falling asleep <laughs> during movies during the afternoon. That's what unemployed people do. And um, really, <laughs> really enjoying my, enjoying my time today. It's all right. I'm actually just I'm sitting here waiting on a call. I had a third interview for a company on la- last Friday that I'm ho- trying to hopefully hear a call back. They're three hours behind me, so there's still a chance you could come in today. Um, but but, I'm, uh, you know, it, it'll probably be pushed until next week. The way the way it's working. They just furloughed a bunch of employees this week. So I'm assuming they're probably focusing on that right now instead of trying to hire new folks. So. I was about yeah. to say, so your priority, if that's the case, correct? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. Well, absolutely. Well, thank you. If, if if I get that, you guys will absolutely need to come out and visit um, yes. because <gasps> yes. we'll be on the sandy, the sandy beaches of Hawaii and it'll be wonderful. <laughs> Beautiful. It'll be so good. So cool. Let's get into it then. The first thing we always do after we have our little introductions um, and we're not going to skip it just because Max isn't here. And you know what? You guys have a lot of responsibility this week because Max is currently in the lead 13 to 11. So if you guys don't guess what I'm watching this week, you're going to you're going to bring us closer to a tie. Um, so hopefully we won't, you won't Max won't get too upset at you and, and we'll figure this out together. Um, but what we're going to do is we're going to play. What am I watching? Which is what is Aaron watching? Everyone listening, you all know what it is. But I'm going to explain it to folks in case they're new or in case um, Matt and Fab need a refresher on the rules. But essentially, what happens is I'm watching something. Y'all get 
five questions to kind of narrow it down. I can provide two clues for you whenever you want. You can start out with both clues. You can wait to the end with the clues. And then a little um, kind of throwing a wrench in the, in the bucket here is if you prefer and you don't want two guesses, you want to put all your eggs in one basket into one guess. You, you definitely can, but what that does is you swap out a guess for a much more more specific clue that's kind of tries to lead you in the right direction. Um, and I have three clues up here that, that I believe are okay. Two of them are kind of more generic, and one of them I think would lead you in the right direction. So we're going to see if it works out. Um, but yeah, essentially, I'm watching something. Y'all get to try to guess. And, and um, to make it easier for you, what we typically do is, is I'll give Max and let him know whether it's a TV show or a movie. Um, but but it is a movie this time. And, and typically, because this is your first game, I'm going to throw you a bone. Um, it's typically uh, has to do with what we're talking about today. So oh, it t- typically perfect. has to do with 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 the um, the genre that we may be speaking of. So. Yeah, go for it. You guys get to... Now, let me put it. You don't each get five guesses. You get five guesses collectively. So you can discuss among yourselves if you want to try to think of a couple questions or if you want to just, you know, somebody just wants to throw it in hangman style, go for it. But you guys Uh, are up. You're breaking Uh, my balls, man. Question on the questions. Are these yes or no uh, answers or Um, can... How do you play that? I think you can kind of get as specific as you want to. We really have never, never really. I mean, you can't ask me like, is it this movie? Because that's that's a guess, essentially, you know, but you can narrow down like like Max likes to say, is it live action or or not? Or is it made before this time or not? Or, you know, who who was the main protagonist? That's this kind kind of stuff. You know, it's it's very much so. I don't think they were yes or no questions, but but we're going to throw it out there to really any kind of questions can can go so what decade okay. are you watching you just stole from? my question that's a good point this is from the 80s i believe i'm gonna double check just to make sure just in case i'm not <laughs> wrong on this i don't think yes. i am please facts facts ah, fact check yes it, it is the 80s okay is the antagonist human that's a great question. The antagonist is not human. Not human. Is the leading person a female? Ooh. That's a great question and kind of difficult to answer on this one. Okay. There are there, there are multiple leading kind of leading protagonists in this one, mm-hmm. really, but I would say the the main crux of the story does surround a female. Gotcha. Eighties. So it's eighties non-human antagonist, and there's a female in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, I, I would say the, the female is a very important part of the movie. Like, there's an important it, female in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So let's see here. That was that was three, three questions. That's three questions. You guys want a clue? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Let's yes, let's fire absolutely. off the first clue. Okay, so history history movie buffs for you guys. I thought I'd throw these kind of clues out for you. Um, the film 
was originally given an R rating, but the filmmakers protested on this successfully and got it down to PG because there was no PG-13 rating at this time. Oh, well, at least not until um, Temple of Doom. Yes, and another movie we'll be talking about later that has to do with PG-13 ratings. Ooh, fun. Okay. Um, Hmm. So it's not R, so it definitely can't be too gory. Maybe lots of implications of gore, but nothing crazy. Um, is it a Christmas movie? Ooh, it is not a Christmas movie. That's four. Uh, sorry, Matt. It's okay. Right. I can throw you another clue. Yeah, let's do another clue. And I think this one, this, this one may help out. But despite being a horror slash thriller film, there are actually no murders or fatalities depicted in this film. Oh, so there's man. No, fat- no fatalities, but it was meant to be rated R. I guarantee you, whether we get the answer or not, as soon as I find out what it is, I'm going to be like, duh. <laughs> yeah, probably. That's always how it works. Um, so ah, we have one. Okay. I have okay. one. I have a question. I'm so sorry. Go sorry. for it. All right, final question. Is final question Is it about a family? Yes it is. Poltergeist. Yes it is. Oh. Yes. <laughs> oh, that was good, Matt. Oh, that was excellent. I knew it. I knew that I could give you guys those kind of clues and you'd come to the right conclusion. I get happy when you guess it, even though I'm losing. You know, like, it still makes me happy. <laughs> oh, now I get it. The female. I mean, like, it. there's at least three females. But, it, there you know, are, it's but like, Carol Ann, you know. Yeah, the crux of the movie yeah. is about the child, right? Like, yeah. it, it really yeah. is. Uh, even though yeah, the, she's missing. Yeah, the movie's like, about grabbing her. Yeah, rescuing yeah. her. So the plot revolves around her existence. Yeah, I was trying to allude to whether it was um, a final girl kind of movie or not. Right, right, right. The last yeah. clue I had for you, if you wanted to, is the word for the title of the movie is German for noisy ghost. Oh, by that point, yeah, I would be like, yeah, Poltergeist, yeah. Yeah. Well, the question, yeah. my, my qu- last question was going to be, um, I didn't know whether to go with asking if it was about a family or if it was a ghost picture, because... Yeah. When you mentioned R, I do remember Poltergeist was up there for that. Right. Because of, it was an early 80s film. Yep. So. Yeah. That's kind of why I like that clue for you, because I figure, you know, you, you know enough about the horror films and like the production behind them and how all of that works that I kind of wanted to go more. I usually go more like what the movie is like inside of the movie is clues. Um, but 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 knowing the audience, I figured I'd throw that one out for you. And. And it worked. I mean, or Absolutely. it didn't it work. Also, and- well, it also worked because I was watching Poltergeist earlier while I was waiting oh. for my Taco Bell to get here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's perfect. Man, Ma- Matt, you and I have been on a roll recently of movies we've been watching together at the same time. What was the last thing that we were both watching independently and we were texting each other and they were connected somehow I, the I other think, night? Well, I think one of them was Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That we both were watching the same. And I thought there was one more, too, that we were both watching at the same time. 
I think it was, well, it was, we were watching separate movies, but they were, I think they were done by the same person. Uh, there was oh, some, yeah, yeah, yeah. They were. Um, oh, what was it? Man, I've been watching so many movies re- late recently. To-, to hear me silently go through the texts. <laughs> yeah, that's always a good time for the listeners to hear us blowing through the, mo- the songs. Well, Matt's doing that. We're talking about our top five favorite horror movies today, and this isn't necessarily our like one through five list of favorites. Um, but what it is is just like these are like these top five like we just love these movies. This is an ever changing list for us. We all probably stress heavily over what to include and what not to include, just because there's so many that we like. And so it's just really difficult. You know, we, if we did this podcast next week, these could be totally different. And so in the spirit of things, we're not really doing a like one through five. We're just doing a these are five that we love. And so it's going to be a little different format than than what we're usually doing for our top five list. But I wanted to start out with spooky season this year um, in October for, for everybody and all the listeners to really give you a good base of here are four. 15 or 20 once we get Max's list, and I'll, I'll read his list off in a second. 20 movies that, to get you started, you know, these are movies that you just go out and you can watch right now. You know they're going to be good. They come from some of the top horror experts in the world. And so you, you just know these are going to be quality things. Um, that way you can write into us if you want to. Say, hey, I really enjoyed that one. Shoot us a thing on Twitter. Really anything you want to. Or just watch them in quiet and peace, as all horror movies should be watched. So, um, to interrupt you, Aaron, I got to the section of our texting on August 29th at 9:52 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You just started Arachnophobia, and I was 20 minutes into watching Dumb and Dumber. That's so right. Two great <laughs> Jeff Daniels films. And that's where our connection lies. Yes. So, <laughs> so now we have three. Con- and now, as you can see, how much Matt and I miss each other is we're just resorting to to watching these movies together without knowing it at the exact same time. It, it, the connection in the world is, is wanting to pull us together, which is is why I wanted to have him on the li- on the podcast today. Is we, we just needed to talk. Um, so, really, honestly, for all the listeners out there, this is just me wanting to chat with my friends about horror movies, and so. With hopefully some good content involved, but but really I just want to talk to you guys about it because we haven't had the kind of talk like this in a long time. It's been years, so I'm really excited about it tonight. I'm excited too. Let's. Uh, oh, I'm very excited. Why don't you Let's start us it. off there, Mister? Yes, yeah, I will. So what I'm going to do first is I'll give you my my movie first, um, and it'll be really apropos to what we just talked about. Um, but I'm going to read off what Matt, Matt, not Matt, Max. We have a lot of M's today. I'm going to read off what Max sent me as his five list. And he waited until this morning because he was struggling over it as much as we were. Um, but he had um, Halloween, The Changeling, um, Akaruto, which is a occult Japanese horror film, uh, Get Out, and then Bubba Hotep. Ooh, those are great picks. Now, which Halloween? The 1978 or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the original. Absolutely. Yeah, there's no way. That is also part of my list. Excellent. So maybe we'll start after that with you. But for me to kick it off. And so for listeners, um, Max and I are going to have a discussion about his list next week. So stay tuned. That's going to be our 15 minute pre-show. And then we will get into our next week's topic, which I think is either 
the creepiest fictional characters, or we're going to do a battle royale of um, all the villains. We've compiled about 32 villains, and we're essentially going to do a tournament style, narrow down to like the winner. And, and I'd like, if possible, for you two to join us on that one as well, because I think that a panel would be way more fun. So we'll have to see about working out some schedules. Um, that just sounds so to much fun. That out. That's like the yeah. babysitter. They do that a little bit. They do kind of like a battle yeah. royale between oh, the yeah. villains they think of. Yeah. Yeah. Great and film. Fun, fun fact. I thought about watching the babysitter tonight too. I was like, I could either watch ah. the babysitter or poltergeist. And I was like, I'm going to do poltergeist just because of the more classic style of our lists that we're going to have. Oh yeah. But the babysitter is awesome. That's a great oh, film. It's so much that, fun. That is yeah. a really fun movie. Uh, one of the, uh, the better, horror movies to have come out uh, in the past couple of years. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's, let's get started and let's, let's do it. So here's my number five and how perfect the connection to Jeff Daniels. And the reason I was watching arachnophobia is because arachnophobia is my number five, uh, <laughs> one of my favorite horror films. And, and the reason is, um, it's because I'm terrified of spiders. Like this movie gives me like the, 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 oh man, the willies, you know, like I was in my room watching it by myself the other day. I watched it like mid afternoon and the whole day I was looking around my, around my room, just like afraid that there was going to be spiders crawling on the floor, on the walls, like coming down. It's one of the first horror movies I have ever seen. My parents showed it to me when I was a lot, when I was pretty young. I was probably around nine or ten, maybe eleven, when I first watched it. And, and oh, it was it was awesome. And, and so, a couple fun facts that I have, and and you guys can talk about arachnophobia. Um, just jump in. You don't have to wait for me. If there's any kind of pause, just jump in and start talking. You never have to wait um, for any kind of permission to talk at all. Um, but. The, the movie was was really, really kind of like meant to be a film like the birds, but really for spiders, you know, um, people like scared, but also laughing. So they threw some comedy stuff in there. But what I found was really cool about it was, is that the little like the big spiders, not the, like the gigantic one, like the tarantula and the, and the one that was clearly animatronic, um, but the other ones that really were were the main part of the show. Those are real spiders from New Zealand. They're called. Oh, um, no. Avon- they're called Avondale spiders and, and mm. the production flew in about 300 of them to use <gasps> during the filming of this. And they were picked because they were large in size. They had a really unusual social lifestyle, which, which means from my understanding is, is like the thing that they do is like, they follow you around is like a real thing, you know, like in the movie where <gasps> like somebody moves and like it turns and it follows you. Like that's, I know that's a real thing because there are spiders that I've had at one point in my life. My dad and I went down and got a car from my aunt and uncle and we drove it back up and intentions on like working on it and fixing it up for my car. And in that car came some California spiders. And there were times where like these little fuzzy guys were sitting on top of the hood in our garage and I would walk all the way around the car and I would visibly see the spider on top of that turn with me and just like (laughs) follow me around the entire thing. And you ran for your life, right? Oh, absolutely. 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 Thank goodness it was close to winter and they all died out because they couldn't survive in Oregon winter, but like oh. being used to a, a California. But still, it is crazy. Um, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that you have a fear of spiders because I particularly don't have a fear of spiders. I have a fear of birds, which is the complete opposite, like you said, in birds. But Oh, that's great. I, I When I was watching Arachnophobia, 
you, you hit the nail on the head. I definitely felt that eerie sensation like there was a spider or a tarantula right behind me or in mm-hmm. my bed. And I just kept looking around to see if there was one. And I don't have a particular fear against them. But the film just does such a good job at creating that atmosphere for the audience. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I was Matt and I were talking earlier this week about what we were really going to. I think it was maybe it was even last week what we were kind of thinking about including on our lists. And, I'm, and and it was really like, oh, wow, I, I should watch Arachnophobia again just to see because like, people don't necessarily look at that film. And I think they don't really think horror, um, but I really think it gets at what horror is trying to do for you. Like it, it just gives you the weird feelings of like looking over your shoulder for things, you know, like I'm not particularly terrified of a poltergeist, but but I am terrified of a gigantic spider landing on my shoulder and, and biting my neck <laughs> like that is terrifying. And so, like, the realistic tariff, like, like I, I was texting, I think I was texting Matt and a couple other people about this as soon as the film was over. I was like, I don't think I'm going to watch that ever again. Like, there is no need for me to ever watch that movie again because it legitimately terrifies me. Like, I'm sure I'll get to it at some point when, when I'll, like, derange my children. But, like, still. Oh. <laughs> or the next time that you want to talk about your top five favorite horror movies, then you'll probably rewatch it. I probably will have to rewatch it. Yeah, mm-hmm. I know. Absolutely. One fun fact before I'll get on to, to one year five is um, there was kind of a weird thing. There's this movie in 1977 called Kingdom of Spiders. Yes. And, and this producer, Igor Cantor, um, he did an interview with Fangoria and he was just like, Arachnophobia, which Spielberg produced, is, is really, really similar to Kingdom of Spiders. And he was like, you know what? I, I thought it was a copy, but you don't go and sue Spielberg. Like, it's oh, like he had so yeah. much respect for Spielberg that he just didn't care that it was Aww. a copy of his work. And I kind of see that as just something that's amazing. Like, I love Spielberg. There's another movie that's going to be by him that's on my list as well. Um, and, and so, yeah, it, it's yeah. I thought that was I mean, that's a, that just shows like what a good I mean, like director that Steven Spielberg is because no one ever dares to sue him because, well, I mean, no. if he can adapt my film in a better way then why not yeah it, it's just i spielberg is awesome like oh, I, yeah. I i have the more i watch of his films that i don't realize are his films like the greater and greater respect i have for him it, it's really kind of an amazing thing he's 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 i think one of a kind and we're not going to catch something like him for a while in, in movie making mm-hmm. i right. know his film he knows film. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh last fun fact because i thought this was great um, also, I have to mention John Goodman's character because he's just the best oh, comedic yes. part of that movie. It's so good. It's like, man, everything that guy does is incredible. But particularly those kind of roles that they put him in is just like, yeah, he, he was just, he, you could tell he just loved doing that, you know? Um, and isn't but he in the, like one scene? He's, no, in, like, he's in three scenes. He's, he's in, in a couple. He's in quite a okay. Bit. Yeah, he's but in not nearly as much as. OK, OK. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. It's been a while since I've seen it. Um, so Jamie Heineman, the guy who was on Mythbusters, he actually, this is one of the first movies that he worked on. Um, and, uh, which I thought was really oh, cool. That's fun. Yeah, and then cool. the, the Foley artists that they used for being like, for when the spiders were stepped on and squished, there's a part of the movie that's clearly like John Goodman tries to squirt the spider with his normal, um, acid and it just doesn't work. doesn't kill it. And he just walks up to it and steps on it. The way they created that sound was um, the Foley artist stepping on mustard packets, and or, <laughs> oh, like, or, or, or like squashed potato chips, which I think is really fun. It's kind of a cool little 
little, 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 like, just like it adds that skeletal and like grossness. Ah, it's awesome. Anyways, that's brilliant. I, I'm, I'm terrified of that movie and I don't want to talk about it anymore. So you guys have one of you guys need to flip a coin to see who's going next. Go ahead, Fabby. Oh, God. All right. Well, I guess I'll start from the earliest film because uh, I have them kind of in order from the time. So I'll start with a really good classic, uh, Psycho from 1960. Uh directed by Alfred Hitchcock and screenplay by Joseph Stefano. So let me start with a summary first for those of you who have yet to see Psycho, but I'm pretty sure everyone at this point at least has heard of the shower scene, the infamous shower scene that everybody has heard the music of by Bernard Herrmann. It's a classic, but the short summary, uh, secretary Marion Crane is on the lam after stealing $40,000. Now, mind you, ne- back in 1960, it was quite a lot. Now, it's still a lot, but 40000 was definitely a lot more back then. Uh, she stole it from her employer uh, to run away with her boyfriend. Uh, however, as she was trying to hide from the police, she stops at the Bates Motel, where she meets a polite yet high-strung owner... Norman Bates, a young man with an interest in taxidermy and a difficult relationship with his mother. Now, this relationship that I have with this movie is very complicated uh, for many reasons. Actually, it kind of starts with um, at Universal Studios Orlando. Uh, Back in the day, they used to have a Alfred Hitchcock Presents show that pretty much talked about all of his famous films. And I was very young. My parents took me in and they were about to do a presentation of the shower scene and how they recreated it, what exactly they used, which, by the way, the blood in the film, um, they used Bosco's chocolate syrup to create that uh, really dark, rich color that you can't necessarily see when you get red food coloring um, and some other substance, like realistic blood. But um, they try to show the, the scene at the show, and I got scared, and my mom <laughs> pulled me out. However, afterwards, my mom sat me down, talked to me about, you know, pretty much how this is, this is the movie magic. This is how things are created, you know? Like, it, it's nothing to be scared about. And so, of course, like, as she talked to me about it, I was like, you know what? No, let me give it another try. And then eventually I was able to find the actual movie Psycho. I think I found it for my grandparents. But I was shocked at how how young I was and how enthralled I was with a black and white movie. And nowadays, you know, with our technology, it's really hard to keep our attention with those kinds of things. But with Psycho, it's almost like it gets you right at the beginning. Like it literally starts off with developing the character that you meet. They set it all up. She goes on her journey. And once you meet Norman Bates, it's like you're hypnotized by this man, which by the way, Norman Bates is loosely based off of the infamous murderer and grave robber, Ed Gein, who, Mm. yeah, who he's, uh, also has influenced plenty of other horror icons that we know of, like Leatherface and Texas Chainsaw Massacre and things like that. But he, the scene where he's talking to Marion Crane and he's just kind of dancing around the fact that his mother is not quite 
normal, but he still defends her. And then he get, gets, has that great line where he's like, we all go a little mad sometimes, like excusing the behavior that his mother is crazy. Um, I don't know if I should give any spoilers for any viewers that haven't seen it, but yeah, I think let's, let's, let's do these. Cause horror movies are, are rely heavily, I think on the ending spoilers to yeah. like, you know, so let's, if you feel it's 1961, right? That's when it came out. 1960. I think. Yes. 60. Okay. I was close. I mean, it's been what? 50 years. So you, you right. probably should know, but just in case let, let's, let's leave it alone. It, it, unless it's critical yeah. to your, to your talking. Don't worry about it. Okay, absolutely. Um, yeah, and the the fun thing is that they had filmed it at Universal Studios Hollywood, and Matt and I actually got to take a picture in front of the Psycho House, and it was pretty neat because they said that they had gutted the entire house on the inside, but the outside was still intact, and so they put all of this lighting to just make it very moody, and you just you just can't help but just feel that energy when they were filming it, especially when it was an Alfred, Hitch- Alfred Hitchcock presentation, you know, like he mm-hmm. just, I mean, he was infamously known to be a very difficult director to work with, but in reality, at the end of the day, it gets the job done. Yeah. So uh, I just, I love psycho. I think it's just a great like thriller. Cause it's not, it's not gory. It's not bloody. Obviously it's from 1960, but even back then it was a huge shock for people. No one mm. was expecting half the things that had happened in that film to occur. And it was something that just wasn't heard of. Yeah. The, the, I think you hit the nail right on the head when you were talking about just kind of being entranced and just kind of intoxicated with Norman Bates. Like, that actor, I thought, did such an incredible job with him, oh. and it's it's probably one of the most like charming on screen characters I have ever seen. Like, it's just he's so smooth, he's awesome. Like, I, I was totally blown away by like, wow, I like this guy a lot. Like, I know what he does, but I like him a lot. Yeah. You know, and, I, and that kind of like really adds to the film so much more than just like having a deplorable you know, antagonist, but when you're looking at him, like, I, I kind of want to be like, I, I would get sucked in by him. I, I would be friends with this person. If I had no idea, like, absolutely. Even if I had an idea, I'd still be like, listen, I know you're bad, but like, there's going to be I a part of you that wants to, <laughs> I, I can't stop. Like, I can't stop listening to you just because you're so, so stupid charming. Yeah. It was, it was awesome. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Anthony Perkins, the actor who plays Norman Bates, he just has this innocence about him that you just Mm -hmm. can't help but, you know, feel sympathy for him, even when he shows his darker sides of himself. I mean, it's just Mm -hmm. he does a brilliant way of bringing that out. So you're right. Oh, that was a great pick. I'm I'm absolutely happy we have. And these are all going to be fantastic picks. And I'm going to gush about every single one of them because they're all going to be amazing. (laughs) Oh, uh, but that one, I'm excited. That one, I, I was, I'm surprised. I didn't even think about Psycho when I was th- creating this list, but I, I, that's that's great. Well, you know, I chose Psycho for well for a lot of reasons, but mainly because it's one of those. In comparison to all the horror movies that we have now seen, um, it's tame in comparison to everything else, and yet it was so impactful. And not, it doesn't have to be overdone and murderous and bloody mm-hmm. it just it as long as it keeps your attention and you're just at the edge of your seat and you you know isn't 
isn't it scary the fact that you can be friends with somebody that seems perfectly normal and natural and then it turns out they're the complete opposite of it i mean i think that's the pure definition of horror being tricked Mm. into (laughs) befriending a villain you know oh absolutely Mm -hmm. absolutely um Perfect. Matt, you're going to go next, and I'm really excited about it. So you should start yours. However, I'm going to cut off there for a second. Fabi, you're moving around some papers and it's picking up on the microphone. Okay. Or at least it sounds like it. it away. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm not trying to stop you. It's just, yeah. No, but yeah, I'll stop it. Okay, cool. Perfect. (laughs) Whatever you're doing, stop. (laughs) Yeah. Just stop what you're doing. now. Um, (laughs) No, you're good to go. Um, All right, cool. Sweet. All right. That was awesome, Fabi. Ah, I love Psycho so much. That was great. Matt, let's get yours. Before we get yours, though, um, do we think the second best thing that ever came out of Psycho is the fact that, that we got Jamie Lee Curtis like into horror after that, you know, because <gasps> because of her mom? Like, like because, you know, that's part of the reason why we got we got her casted in Halloween and stuff is because her mom was in is in Psycho. Oh, absolutely. And I'm so glad that Janet Lee was the woman that they cast for yeah. it because now yeah. we have Jamie Lee Curtis and then later yeah. down the road, they start to do films together, which I absolutely love. Uh, I can talk about them all day long. So Sorry. Good. Continue. Yeah, I know <laughs> we have to get through this at some point. This won't be a four hour podcast. We hope and we promise. <laughs> absolutely. All right, Matt, you are up. Good to go. So I like Fabi's approach with uh, going through each movie, depending on the year that they came out. I, I uh, don't have any particular order. Um, like you said, Aaron, a top five for especially a genre that's one of your favorites. They're going to move around. They're going to change. Um, it's hard doing a top five, let alone top ten. However, I think that the earliest film that we have on my list is uh, playing off of Psycho, actually, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre from 1974. and. Like you said, Fabi, um, the infamous serial killer Ed Gein actually um, inspired, you know, they were, um, Leatherface was inspired by Ed Gein as uh, well as uh, Hannibal Lecter. So there's a lot of fictional um, serial killers that were inspired by him. So that's kind of a fun takeaway from that. So. There is a lot of reasons why Texas Chainsaw is on my list. Um, And if anybody has not seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it is one of the most infamous splatter films. Um, With that said, one of the things that I love about Texas Chainsaw Massacre is that while a lot of people have kind of viewed it as a very bloody movie there's not a lot of blood in it at all um there's a few here and there the climax has probably the most blood but even by well i would say by today's standards but even by some of the standards of the 70s and 80s it's still pretty tame uh the director toby hooper actually attempted to get a pg rating for texas chainsaw so a lot of the violence was implied uh, there are several infamous scenes that were shot from a, a wide shot instead of a close-up to get that um, implication of violence. 
And I think that's one of the things that is just fantastic about this movie. He tried to censor himself. And as a result, it ended up being much worse than he could possibly imagine in the sense of fear and violence. It was actually banned in many countries uh, for the longest time, uh, which is yeah pretty funny considering how, you know, nowadays there's more violence in television shows than that movie. Yeah, didn't it, didn't it um, get put on that UK nasty video list? It was one of the early films of the uh, the nasty list. Yeah. I think it was banned. It was um, it was banned in several countries up until the uh, late eighties, early nineties. So it was on their do not playlist for hmm. you know for some countries up to fifteen years. And Matt, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but did. Weren't there people that believed that this was basically a snuff film? Like, they literally went through the entire events for real and those people actually died on screen? People thought that, uh, which actually brings up to my next point. One of the things that is actually um, one of my favorite things about this movie is the gritty documentary style that the movie kind of, uh, the style that the movie was filmed. And, you know, stuff like, it was filmed in 16 millimeter, blown up to uh, 32. So that made um, everything just look a little more grungy. Uh, the soundtrack alone, if you watch that movie and you pay attention to the soundtrack, it doesn't sound like anything, but it's very haunting. The soundtrack actually has, it, it does not contain any sounds from musical instruments. Uh, with the exception of a few of the copyrighted music that they had the rights to. But as far as the score is concerned, it's the way that it was described, at least that I've come across, is that they intended the score to be sounds that an animal would hear inside of a slaughterhouse, mm -hmm. which those that have watched Texas Chainsaw Massacre knows how much that applies to the theme. Another cool th uh, fun fact about Texas Chainsaw Massacre is that with the title, you think that there's going to be a free-for-all of everybody getting sawed, sliced up, chainsaws. There's only one person that is killed by a chainsaw in the film, <laughs> which I thought was kind of funny. But it was that was that who was killed? But was it Franklin? Franklin. Franklin was yeah. the uh, sole person. Everybody That's else what was uh, by mallet. One of the things I want to mention too before before we get into it is is this is actually one of the movies that's on my list, so we're gonna do a two for one here. Yeah. Um, uh, why don't you take over from here and talk about why you love the movie? Sure. Yeah. It just I mean, I wanna echo everything you just said, but really it just has to go back to uh, I think this movie among all the other films that are on my list was um I, I kind of tried to pick movies that just absolutely blew me away the first time I watched them. And I remember sitting in your apartment watching this for the first time and just being like, holy cow, like, I didn't, like, I knew this was a classic, but I did not realize how much, like, of a movie that I would just, I just love it so much. Everything about it is awesome, the way they set it up. The fact that, like, you know, it, it takes place in a very prescient time as far as the gas shortage in the 70s, so that kind of hit really well. Um... It's it just the like 
you're stopping off on the side of the road, kind of just try to find some help and, and you get massacred like that. That can happen to people. So, like, it's terrifying that way. And the fact that the, the the antagonists just don't really talk all that much. And when they do, it's just a garbled mess. And like, it's awesome. It really, really personifies just like creepy, like what really like i like about horror is just like no hold bar just like we're just gonna dive deep into this and show like what can can really be messed up about this kind of genre and i love but like it's it's done in a very i don't know it's done in a way that like it doesn't make you feel gross or icky it just kind of makes you like kind of just like it's it's got an artistic feel to it 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 does. does i'm not terrified of it at all but like I, I recognize the fact of like how terrifying that situation would actually be. And then when they bring the grandpa down, I, I have a, a, a little fun fact about that, that I want to pull out. I think you kind of covered most everything I wanted to talk about as far as the fun facts, but um, I thought this was really, really cool. Let me see if I can find this one. Here it is. Um, the on-screen blood. Cause we talked a little bit about the blood in, in psycho. The on-screen blood was actually real in some cases. It, it wasn't just, you know, fake. Mm-hmm. Um, when the scene where Leatherface feeds Grandpa, um, which is very, very, uh, the dinner scene is awesome. It's, it's just, it's great. It makes um, you, it's all, it keeps you on edge the whole time, which is something to say about a film that old, uh, especially considering that it was, you know, your, uh, one of your independent films. Um, mm-hmm. And I'll let you get to your point in a hot second, but it's one of those movies where I feel like everything was just, you know, Right place, right time. Right. Uh, the formula was perfect. It's a the, movie the be- that really in it really induces fear. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I can imagine in 1974, if it like you're sitting down in the theaters, you're kind of expecting maybe like you said, like just a a kind of a massacre, right? You know, like a lot of kills and a lot of a lot of blood and gore, and then you sit down and you get that. Like I can't imagine what that that reception would have been like when you like first see something like that. Um, the the blood though, when I'm what I was trying to get at was the um, so the, the the dinner scene. I'm going to spoil this a little bit, but there's a dinner scene where they cut the finger of one of the actors, or they were supposed to, you know, they faked cut the fingers of one of the actors and they fed it to the grandpa um, to kind of like sustain him and keep him alive. However they couldn't figure out a good way to make it look real with like a tube. So they legitimately cut the finger of the actor and, and, and did it like that. Oof. That is a real blood scene. Like that's something that, that didn't just happen. Like, which to me is like the commitments that you kind of have to have to make this movie work and, and why it really shines through. And, and like when Matt said, like all the choices that were made in the film were just right choices, right time. The kind of everything was set up correctly the way they focus on really weird, just seemingly incongruent parts of the film, like the hive of spiders they find in the first house. You're like, what does it have to do with anything? But really it's, it's there. Like it's there just it's to build atmosphere is what it yeah. is. And it's, and, it's setting and a tone and that and I'm so sorry. Go on. No, go for it. Like, I guess what I was just going to say is, is like the movie to me is my favorite atmospheric horror film. Like it, it just yes. the atmosphere that it puts you in when you're watching it. And the fact that like, you know, a lot of times it's horror films can be funny. They can, they can, there's some comedic elements to it and you can kind of, it kind of brings on talking during the movie a little bit. But like when I watch this, I, I kind of just want to sit in silence and just look, you know, exactly. like, like it, don't get me wrong. I love 
of Friday the 13th for all of their merit. But you're right. They have a little bit more of a, you know, cheesy 80s style to it. Um, it's almost a realistic edge that it's got over the other iconic horror mm-hmm. legends that we know, like Friday, like um, Jason or Freddy or even Michael Myers. It's not that it's terribly realistic because, like you said, it has an artistic edge to it, but it's definitely more atmospheric in that sense. I mean, the fact that we know that the blood that they used was real and that they used real animal carcasses that they found on the street to put in like their sets. I mean, like they literally put skeletons and bones and decaying flesh in the, the famous Texas Chainsaw house. It's, it's eerie. It's creepy. And I don't see another film. I mean, I'm sure there are plenty, but there, a lot of horror films nowadays lack that realistic tendency, I guess, to bring that to life. Even though many of them try to imitate that. Right. You know, uh, the movies that we're going to be discussing on probably all five, all all three of our lists, I guarantee you each film has many imitators. Uh, Texas Chainsaw is no exception. However, it's one. Of, it's also one of the few films where this is also just personal taste. Um, it's it's one of the few franchises where I only like one of them, <laughs> which yeah. is the first. <laughs> Texas Chainsaw Massacre Two is fun. It does have some fun tongue-in-cheek moments. They definitely went a little bit more, you know, studio Hollywood with the project. Um, it, it's it got more comedic moments. Uh, a lot of people love the remake, and I don't dislike the remake. I just think that it is a little where the original is gritty, the remake is glossy. And mm-hmm. I feel like whenever I, in the past, have watched the remake, it just makes me want to watch the original again. And yeah. I feel, and just to me, I mean, for those that love the remake, I, I applaud that. It, hey, you know, you, you, oh. it's great that you have that taste. However, if a remake reminds me of how good the original is, and I'd rather watch that while watching the remake, it's not exactly oh, yeah. uh, successful. <laughs> no, no, I agree with you. And, and, and I want to point out, Something that you said here is like between our circle of little friends we have here, you know, I think out of everybody else, there is absolutely no like movie shaming whatsoever between absolutely us. Like, not. if you like something and you can explain to us why you like it, we don't care. Awesome. Go for it. You know, like, I applaud anybody that likes anything because that's something you like. Yeah, and, oh, uh, absolutely. I, well, for example, I love Van Helsing, but no one's going to tell me that it's a great film, but I'm going to be the one to sit here and tell you why it's an amazing film, but it's I watched all Van in Helsing. Taste. I watched Van Helsing in the theaters with my brother and came out just loving that. It was awesome. <gasps> oh, it's such a fun movie. It's totally so underrated. I understand why people hate it, but it's a fun one. Yeah. So I want to uh, talk one more. Oh, I'm sorry, uh, Aaron. No, I you want I I, I was only going to have a, I just had a few more little quick fun facts about yes, Texas, but, but yeah, but, you talk about what you want. Uh, with yeah, the film. so so I just discovered this just like literally right now um, on the Wikipedia page, which I think is really funny, and I, I kind of want to go here to see if it's still available. But the farmhouse that was used in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was moved from La Frontera to Kinglands, Texas, and it's actually been restored as a restaurant. Um, which which I kind of find is a, a beautiful kind of cap to this movie. It, it oh. really just kind of personifies what what it's all about. Honestly, we should take a trip there. 
Yes, yeah, so all of our friends amazing. that live in Texas, let us know how that restaurant is. Absolutely. Yeah. Hopefully, I assume they have really good barbecue. <laughs> and even if the food is not great, we're still in, in the piece of history. Oh, yeah. For sure. And then, Matt, the only other thing I had was the, um, and you know this better than I do, but I believe the person that did the uh, the uh, monologue at the very beginning of the film just paid off in a really unique way. Uh, yes. Uh, yes, John. Um forgot his last name, but uh, yes, his payment for doing the opening narration was a marijuana joint. <laughs> <laughs> oh, which is great. I, I believe that. that Toby Hooper asked him if he could do an Orson Welles accent. And I think at the time he was a, a very hungry actor. So, of course, when you're hungry for work, you say yes to whatever the question was. And that is his take on an Orson Welles accent. It's, the man's it's, name it's, was John Henry Falk. Oh, cool. Oh, mm-hmm. Falk. That's so perfect. One of my um, my uh, family members last, like a big part of my family's last name is Falk. So maybe, uh, depending some on how it's spelled, maybe there's some connection there, which would just, and we have family, I believe, I don't think we have any Falk family in the Midwest, but but it's possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, ooh, that makes me even more. I gotta look that up now and see see if if we're somehow somehow Maybe you can hire distantly him related. With a marijuana joint. I, yeah, I'm gonna try. <laughs> Unfortunately, sure. you can't because he passed away in 1990. But oh, you can yeah. get some family members, I'm sure, to reaffirm that um, theory you've got there, Aaron. Yeah, I gotta see. The rates have gone up. Yeah, <laughs> now it's three <laughs> instead of one. Um, darn inflation. The, uh, um, I think that's, that's about it. I have on text. I'm glad we kind of, I mean, I'm, I can't, we're going to skip my movie and go straight to Fabby again, because I don't have my, my next movie was not Texas, but now that we've talked about it, I can get that off of my list. One quick tidbit I have, um, yeah, go for it before Fabby takes over for her next film. uh, One of my favorite sequences of, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is when, um, uh, the character Pam stumbles into the bone room. Oh yeah, um, yeah. It's a it's it's an excellent sequence. Um, what I love about it is that it's just shot after shot of just the furniture, the bones, clucking of the chicken, everything that's around her. And one thing that is great about that scene is you don't realize until Pam starts reacting to the room just how long that sequence goes on. Mm-hmm. That kind of goes into the trance that Fabi was talking about earlier. The, in this scenario, it's to a scene, uh, the environment. Uh, you're so focused on what the next shot is going to be in this uh, horribly, horrifically graphic environment um, you don't realize how long she is just laying in that room, looking at everything. Yeah. I won't spoil what happens next for those that haven't got to watch it. It's definitely a movie that you have to experience if you like horror in uh, uh, any sense. Yep. 
Nope. Also, if you really love a good chase scene, um, the character who Aaron previously mentioned that had to cut her finger open uh, has a very long chase scene with the infamous Leatherface, and it's just such a wild ride. I mean, you just feel her exhaustion. You just feel the exhaustion that she's going through. I mean, you know that these people are running, let alone the man, Gunnar Hansen, who who, um, played Leatherface, was in a mask and in that getup. I'm sure well, that, he was sweating profusely. Well, they said the the filming took place in Texas, and it was anywhere from 95 to 100 degrees every single day they filmed. It was so one of the biggest right. heat waves um, for that year, I believe. Um, yeah, and they used carcasses on the set, so that must have I been like, boiling. Oh, gross! Yeah, they also Toby, did not change. They had the same costumes all throughout the shoot, so. I believe Marilyn Burns, who plays Sally in um, who is our final girl, uh, I believe at the towards the end of the shoot, she mentioned that her costume was solid as a brick just by oh, the yeah. end because <laughs> oh, they no. were unable to wash their clothes for continuity purposes. Yeah, this that's it's it really is. It's, you got to watch it. It's an experience. Like if you think you can handle it, which, you know, there's no gore factor there. There's no like it's just kind of like if you're ready for that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you're ready for a creepy, weird, like just terrifying ride and you're able to stomach that, then you should absolutely do it. And the last thing I want to say, and we should we should probably move on Um is the fact that I, I, I think I want to take a just really hit a nod to the uh, the editing in, in the film, especially during the dinner scene um, when it, it goes from her face to the to the to the scene. I just think it's wonderfully done. All oh, the yeah. cuts I, I think are just it really adds to that atmosphere of like it's an excellent it's not, representation of madness. Is what yeah, it is. it's exactly what it is. The, the whole thing is so cohesively put together. It's not just about the actors on screen or what's happening. It's about how it was shot. It's about what the edits are looking like and really using the film technology and using that apparatus to, to add to the film, which I, I don't think is done as well in a lot of other movies that it is done here. And I think it, it's, it really is. It's, it's absolutely an atmospheric movie and not a jump scare. And, and I love that. All right. I agree. As much as we want to, I mean, we could talk about it. that's the problem when you get us on the podcast together is is this conversation usually happens over an hour long period of just one film. So we're really trying to shorten it down a little bit for everybody. I feel like we should <laughs> we, have done fifteen podcasts, five apiece. <laughs> ooh, we absolutely could have, and we could have easily done an hour on each of these films and gotten way more in depth on the development, the background, the casting, all of that stuff. To it, it gets to the point where the podcast is longer than the actual movie. <laughs> there's, there's a podcast that I listen to that does movies in review, and they always mark at the point in the podcast we're like well now we are longer than the actual movie like and it, <laughs> it always happens it, it's wonderful um so the that fabbies. was also on my list so i'm skipping myself and we're gonna just go directly back into fabs and and take it away well i do have a question for you aaron you say that yeah. on your list there was a steven spielberg film is that correct there yes well it, it's it's it was produced by steven spielberg it's not directed okay. 
Okay, because yeah. I was going to mention one that would be skipping ahead of my list, but, you know, I just wanted to make sure that, yeah. and, you know. And you guys are all talking about going in order from the oldest to the newest. I think I'm actually almost opposite of that um, because Arachnophobia was my earliest or my latest made movie. Everything else I have is made before 1991, um, which kind of you can kind of tell a theme of the movies that, that we all like and what we appreciate about a horror is all of our movies happen from like the 90s, you know, and earlier. Absolutely. I think a good genre is between the 60s to the late 90s. Yep. Not yep. not to say that there's no older or newer ones that are good, but there's definitely oh, more yeah. of the classics in those. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So go for it. I mean, pick anything you want. And if we happen to get to another one of mine, then then that just means we all have great taste. All right. Well, that's good. Um, all right. So I guess I'll go ahead um, in order. Uh, f- we're going from 1960 to now 1968. Night of the Living Dead. Uh, directed by George Romero, and it was also written by George Romero with the help of John Russo. Um, So, little summary for those of you who have not seen it yet. The story follows seven people who are trapped in a farmhouse while hiding from a large group of cannibalistic undead corpses. Um, So, for many reasons, I absolutely adore this film. First of all, um, before Night of the Living Dead, there weren't too many zombie films i mean there were a couple there was um white zombie with bella lugosi um i believe back in the 1930s but even then it wasn't necessarily a zombie it was more of voodoo um ritualistic kind of zombie not the kind of zombies that we know nowadays like in walking dead where you get bitten and then you get infected this was pretty much the first of the zombie genre that we know nowadays I mean, it influenced the rest of well, all zo- zombie genre history. Um, he drew inspiration from the the novel I Am Legend. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen that movie. I've only seen the movie, never read the book, but I Not know the, Will the Smith. one. Right, I've seen the Will Smith one, but that one has more about vampires. So this yeah. one has more of the zombies, but they never call them zombies. They call them ghouls. So <laughs> they don't introduce the word yet, but it's still that same cannibalistic uh, reanimated corpses coming to life. Um, I love this film for so many reasons. Like I already said, Um, actually one of the lead characters, this, so I mentioned that this film was uh, made in 1968. So this was at the height of the civil rights movement and the leading actor, one of the leading actors was actually African-American. His name was, uh, Dwayne Jones and George Romero up until his death always claimed that his casting was in no way intentional to uh, the civil rights movement or Martin Luther King Jr.'s passing because it had just happened coincidentally at the same uh, same time. Um, he just he wrote the role for a white uh, trucker that was almost uneducated. Um, but when Dwayne Jones came into read for the role he completely reimagined the character and pretty much took uh Dwayne's lead on it because he felt that he could have really been a leader and in the film not to give away too much but you know one person going goes into a house another person goes into the house and then they realize there's other people in the house so they all kind of join together to figure out how to survive with this horde of zombies or ghouls uh, coming through uh, from outside the house. And he kind of takes 
a bit of leadership in the situation. And apparently in real life, um, Dwayne Jones was not a very violent person. He actually opposed it very much. Um, so it took a lot for him to do certain scenes like, you know, like either fighting with a zombie or hitting someone um, in one of the scenes. Actually, he hits two people now that I think about it. But um, another fun fact about the movie is that m- the majority of the people, if not everybody, all the actors were also crew members, essentially. I mean, the people that were playing the ghouls, um, they were using uh, resources that they had. Like there was a man who had a series of butcher shops and there's a scene where the ghouls, you see them eating and you know, you think that maybe it's just like chicken or something. No, it's like literal guts and livers from, um, uh, from a butcher shop that you would get. Um, they used that. They utilized old clothes um, that they had in their attic. They had people that were uh, the ghouls like holding the boom mics. I mean, like literally it was like a whole film that just the whole cast and crew came together to make. And it just is absolutely beautiful. I mean, it's the music is just beautiful. The, the acting is so real. And there's a scene where um, actually, so, not to ruin it too much, but um, in the beginning, there is a brother and a sister, and the brother pretty much kind of spooks his sister, and her name's Barbara. And he says the famous line, They're coming to get you, Barbara. And so <laughs> later, uh, she's in the house, um, and she is speaking to Dwayne Jones about what she had encountered. They're all sharing stories of how they first encountered those ghouls because they all have different stories. They came from different areas. And she said in an interview that that monologue that she gives, which by the way is powerful is, was actually improv. So it's interesting that I was reading about how these actors, not only were they like part of the crew themselves, but they also um, George Romero took creative um, leeway to the actors and some that doesn't happen a lot in a lot of films. I feel like there are a lot of directors or screenwriters or um, that are very specific about their point of view, but they really, he was really able to get that collective. Um, I guess, how do I describe that? I guess that collective creativity that the individual person had about their character and took that into the film. And I think it just shows just how creative everybody was. I mean, it's just, it's a great film. I love it. That's all I have to say about that. (laughs) No, it's a, it is a great movie. Uh, And like you said, uh, you know, back in the, uh, you know, any movie that involved zombies were voodoo. So this was really what, kickstarted how zombies are viewed today you're you're walking dead um you know uh, you're you're walking dead zombies whether they run or whether they're slow uh decapitating the head or severing the brain from the uh from the uh, spinal column anything all of that came from this movie and one and one thing that is actually kind of interesting is that the first adaptation of I Am Legend is a Vincent Price film called Last Man on Earth. Great film. And as of as of September 2020, 
It is on Amazon Prime, for those of you that wish to give it a shot. It does follow the book, kind of. It's uh, not very close. Uh, they are vampires, but... The way that you watch it, if you were when you watch that movie nowadays, you immediately think you immediately think of zombies. Mm-hmm. Um, however, back in the day when that movie first came out, nobody really saw any other villain or creature like that. Mm-hmm. Um, although the big difference is that they do talk. <laughs> <laughs> I do have another uh, note that I just remembered. Um, I think one of the biggest things about this film is, you know, the majority of the film takes place inside of a house. So you do see the ghouls because there are shots where they do go outside. But in reality, it's following the dynamic between individuals that all came from different parts of the world coming together to try to survive. And you see that power struggle. You see um, you see a mother caring for their daughter who is possibly hurt. You see um, someone who's lost their relative. You know, there's just so many different dynamics. And, of course, there's always got to be some kind of battle and there is one particular character that wants to kind of take leadership, but it's more of in a rash way that he wants to take it. So, you know, it's just so interesting to see all of those characters come to life together and see how the night plays out. Cause all of this essentially takes place in the matter of a night and you, and Throughout the movie, they get radio connection. Um, they're able to like see, sorry, not see here um, places where they can go for safety. But in reality, they can't really get there walking because there's a bunch of ghouls out there. So they have to figure out a plan to get out to safety. And it's just the dynamics are just beautiful. I think what really sells it for me is the acting in this film. And I think that it carries over into the rest of George Romero's films that he later um, creates. This is actually part one of his like trilogy zombie films. Um, The other ones are Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead. Um, And it's just, I I think it's beautiful. I think it's just a beautiful movie. I I agree with everything you just said. I've only seen the movie once, so I will. If anybody, you know, if you have more to say about it, Matt, I don't have much to add here because um, uh, I believe I've only much, seen it once. Uh, hit everything. And I'm pretty sure when you and I watched it, we were probably also playing BattleBots. So I may not have paid attention <laughs> as much as I needed to. <laughs> That's not well, a shocker. You got to play BattleBots. <laughs> oh, you have to. It's it's a requirement. Um, yeah. So, Matt, go for it. If you're if you're both finished with the Night of the Living Dead, then then have at it. All right. So, my next movie that is on my list is actually the second George A. Romero film, Dawn of the Dead, from 1978. What a coincidence. That's awesome. It is. Happy accident. How could that possibly happen? Uh, to me, <laughs> this is the my favorite zombie movie ever made. Um, mostly because he basically took his concept of the uh, zombie genre and it exploded experimentally. Uh, Fun fact about it is 
he was wandering around in a shopping mall, George A. Romero was, and he said to himself, a shopping mall would be a great place to escape an apocalypse. So the next thing you know, we have Dawn of the Dead, which was actually filmed in Moroville Mall. It's in uh, Pennsylvania, which is all where all of his films were for films were uh, filmed. <laughs> and the thing about Dawn of the Dead is that it is in color because it's 1978. And one thing that he wanted to kind of differentiate Dawn of the Dead from Night of the Living Dead was considering that he had color, it, it has a very vibrant, a very bright look to it. Uh, he kind of filmed it almost as if it was like a comic book. Your your blood is very red. It's a bright red. Um, and Tom Savini actually worked on that movie, who is also in it as one of the antagonists towards the end. And Tom Savini chose a gray color for the zombie skin because Night of the Living Dead was in black and white. So that was kind of a uh, tribute. And also the fact that the skin tone was not depicted in a black and white film. But later he kind of regretted it, considering that it looks a little blue. But I don't think that takes away from the movie, because the movie is so much better than just the color of the zombie. Now, in this movie, they do say zombie once. It's towards the end, uh, in the middle of the climax. Uh, which is kind of funny considering that one of the things that George Romero films are known for is that they're not outright called zombies. They're called ghouls or um, the dead. The dead have come back to life, you know. Several little um, more tips that I have, or not tips, trivia I have on Dawn of the Dead is that it's actually one of the things that George Romero was big on is um, adding social commentary to his movies. And this was, this social commentary, um, was kind of depicted by consumerism. So our heroes find solace and safety within a mall, just as consumer products make us feel comfortable and civilized. The infected flock to the mall, as quoted, they do not know why, they just remember, they remember that they want to be in here. And that kind of depicts their blind need to inhabit a mall. Uh, all the more human. I love that line so much. And I don't want to spoil much, but there are moments where our heroes kind of let their guard down. Um, and when basically what happens is they put the mall and the products in the mall and everything that they have at their disposal over their own safety, uh, which I think is is a big uh, nod to how a lot of people live their lives, especially uh, those that are a little bit more materialistic. Um, so I think that that was one of the things that George Romero, you know, um, that was one of the things that he kind of made very uh, prominent in his movies. Uh, Season of the Witch was about women empowerment you know, uh, the crazies was about um, government interference as well as, um, I guess, accidents that the government can make 
that can affect uh, the human population detrimentally. Uh, so it, none of none of his movies are at face value, which is always something good to see, especially in you know a genre film. Just a quick question: When you say season of the witch, you don't mean the absolutely amazing piece of art, season of the witch, the third sequel to Halloween. No, I'm, talk- right? no, okay. I'm talking about I'm talking about a movie called Season of the Witch. Gotcha. I want to stop here okay. for a second too, Fabi. Are you being ironic? Because I like Season of the Witch. <laughs> oh, I, I adore that movie. It's not on my okay. top five, but I love that movie for sure. Okay, good, good. <laughs> but I know a lot of people detest it because there's no Michael Myers. So I, that's I why wish, I said it. I wish they would have. Fulfilled. I, I don't mean to cut you off, Matt. I'm sorry. I wish they would have followed through with that that through line though, and and, and kept on going anthology style with oh, Halloween in, in, instead of moving back to Michael. I mean, Michael Halloween Four is incredible. Don't get me wrong. But, like, I would have loved to have seen more of, like, an anthology kind of, like, Halloween, almost like a Tales from the Crypt-style stuff, rather than yeah. just focusing on My- Michael Myers the whole time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the season of The Witch that I'm referring to, Fabi, is the uh, 1973 movie that George Romero uh, wrote and directed. Oh, okay. Oh, I do have a, a, a side note about Dawn of the Dead, uh, bringing us back to that. Um for those of you who have never seen the film, um, really it follows four individuals that are trapped in a mall. And one of those individuals is a woman who just so happens to be pregnant. And I find one of the, one of the scenes very interesting that they leave her alone for a moment without any weapons, nothing to defend herself. Because in reality, they're, they're going out, the, the other men are going out there to go grab materials, resources, and things like that in the stores. And when, while they were doing that, a zombie was coming to where she was and she could have been killed. So later on, she basically addresses everybody and saying, hey, I'm not playing your den mother. I'm here just like you guys. And if you're going to leave me alone, then I'm going to need some protection. So that includes a gun and other resources. And I just think that that dynamic was so needed because I'm not like I love films like the thing because like not not to go off on it, it this has a point I love films like the thing because <laughs> it it centers around a bunch of men and that dynamic is very important for that story but I feel like when it comes to these survivalist stories you can't just have one gender all in one setting because it's not realistic because you may have all the same idea or you might have that testosterone running or vice versa. If you get a bunch of females together and then it's just, they're all fighting and being catty. It just doesn't work that way. And I feel like that balance really brings that out in Dawn of the Dead. And I just love that film. Also, I love the line when Ken Forey's character, Peter says, when there's no more room in hell, the dead will walk the earth. Oof, that's a terrific line. I absolutely love that line, but yes. So. Matt, do you have anything else you want to add? I have one small thing I want to add about Dawn of the Dead, and uh, but uh, this is your show, so. Technically, it's your show, but my move. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, that is pretty much it, although a couple of years ago, Fabi and I went to the Monroeville Mall um, in Pennsylvania for a Dawn of the Dead uh, convention. It was a uh, reunion, and we did a tour of some of the filming locations. And 
With the exception of some white paint, it looks exactly the same. Ooh, that's cool. That was actually going to be one well, of my questions back, right now. The, is, the backstage area, the mall itself, yeah. and, and the, you know, yeah. the, the customer-facing mall is very, very different, although the marble pillars are still there. The clock tower has been removed. The, la- the uh, little water area has been removed. The ice rink has been replaced with a food court where we had mall Chinese food. <laughs> <laughs> It was quite uh, delicious. That, I, I'm glad you brought that up because I was legitimately just right about to ask you if if you that was the mall you all had been to because I'm pretty sure it was. Um, yeah, yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was a, a really good time. Um, we had a really good tour guide. He went through pretty much every lo- every uh, bit of the mall, saying this is where they filmed X Y Z. And oh, it yeah. was, he uh, went shot it was for really shot. interesting. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was, it was very interesting. It was, um, it was a good experience. Excellent. My, my only, my only story about this is not actually about the, uh, original Dawn of the Dead, but the remake. Um, and my really only connect, I mean, I've seen Dawn of the Dead, but my really only connection with it, um, other than watching it for the first time with you guys is, um, this was like one of the very, very, besides like, you know, arachnophobia, as I talked about earlier, I saw the birds when I was really young as well. Um, but, but besides those, my first kind of what I felt like was was my first like really true horror that I watched. Um, really true horror based loosely, but was Dawn of the Dead, the remake. And I watched it on somebody's laptop on a school trip back. For, like we were playing some sporting events a couple hours away because we live in a small town. So like sometimes you have to play opponents like two and a half hours away. and. I was like, well, this person had Dawn of the Dead on their laptop. And I was like, I'm just going to watch it. And they let me watch it. And um, I-, I was terrified the entire time I was watching. It was on a very dark, dark bus. I was driving back and and I was watching it by myself, just like sitting in one of those bus seats. And it was kind of one of those like, I, th- I think I may like this genre. I-, I need to I need to discover more of this and more of this kind of thing. So. That's my one big connection with Dawn of the Dead. It was really the the remake was one of the very first like horror movies I've ever seen. And I always remember that experience and like looking out the window on the bus and just being scared. Um, It was it was a great feeling. The remake was well done. It's more I feel like it's more of an action movie uh, than I mean, it is horror, but it's definitely a little more uh, action oriented. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's. it's not a bad remake at all. It's definitely up there. I've seen on a lot of fans uh, lists for some of the best uh, remakes. Um, yeah, it's not bad. No, 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 not at all. Um, excellent. I guess I get to go again. Finally. Sweet. My next film is Gremlins. <gasps> and I put it on here. Because uh, it's a horror comedy, and I wanted to kind of stress that horror movie is not just necessarily all about just the scare factors and and gory bloodiness. Like there are some great horror films out there that can also be incredibly comedic, and really just the atmosphere of it's perfect. A lot of my films are very atmospheric, just because I, I really like that style. Um, but I love Gremlins. So, so much. I was watching, I rewatched all of these films over the last few days just to make sure I could talk about them you know, coherently. 
And there's some really, really cool things. I remember watching Gremlins with my older brother when we were kids and and both loving the movie and, and being a little terrified of it. Um, but the creepiest scene to me and still the, like one of the greatest things that came out of that was the when the mother is upstairs and the, you know, do you hear what I hear Christmas song starts to play. And it's just this audio track of this great Christmas song. And it just is stuck in my head for all of eternity that when I hear that song, Gremlins comes to mind. Like, it's just one of those audio cues that, like, that stuck more than anything else. And the amount of great, great kills that they do to the Gremlins, like the microwave and, you know, Stripe at the very end with, with, oh, it's just so good. And how can you not look at Gizmo and see the Mogwai? And just want to cuddle up to that thing and want to have one of your own. It's every like kid's little dream just to have one of those things. I did have um, one. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, has it been confirmed? Are those like, that's what started Furbies, right? I mean, come on. I feel like it had to have been. I'm sorry, like, but it basically yeah. was the early Furby for me. It is. Like, yeah. the Furby has a beak and Gremlins have a little, like, fleshy mouth. But that, I'm not Gremlins, the Mogwai have a fleshy mouth and, like, and the ending of it where they're like, you know, I don't think this is too much of a spoiler where where the the, the shop owner who originally had the Mogwai is like, you're not ready for this yet, but you may be, you know, and so yeah. come back when you're ready, which I thought was a really cool way of like, typically, I feel like you would see something that they would just say, you're not ready for this. You mess this up. Go away. But no, they were like, I think think you could be ready for this, but you're definitely not ready for this yet. Um and, and it's it's a great great film to get kids if if you if you think they like horror and you want to test that out. I think Gremlins is like one of the perfect movies to show them. Um, and, and we alluded to this earlier, but but a few fun little facts about this one is along with Temple of Doom, Gremlins is also a movie that helped create the PG thirteen um, rating. Mm-hmm. Um, from when I was reading about it, is it came out about two months before they started, or like it was trying to get. Um, the MABPA was trying to rate it about two months before the PG-13 came out, which is why this one ended up having a PG rating and they wanted to make it a PG-13 rating. I think it has a PG rating to it. Um, I should probably check that. We'll, we'll um, fact check that so, later. Yep, I'm about to do that right now. It is... Get back to me on that. <laughs> it's, it <Yeah>. wasn't clear. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, PG, but like, PG. Here we go. Yeah, PG. So it is PG. So yeah, it is one of the films though that like was in that weird like this should be PG thirteen but isn't. Um, and it did absolutely help create that PG thirteen rating system along with Temple of the Doom, which I thought kind of two Spielberg movies that did that. You know, another thing that he added. Um, Spielberg didn't write or direct this or anything, but he did um, produce this. Um, I believe he was one of the producers. And so this is also something that um, which is why it strikes me so well is one of my favorite writer director movies. Chris Columbus um, is the person who wrote this. Yes. Um, And the coolest thing about it is this was actually one of Chris Columbus's um, very, very first spec um, films that he that he wrote. So he wrote this as a spec and he didn't write this as a full fleshed out movie. And, And what happened was is Spielberg got his hands on the spec. And he liked it so much, he just bought it and had Columbus, like, finish out the story. Um, And and it was never supposed to be, like, anything greater than just a spec. But because Spielberg loved it so much, he just bought it on the spot and said, all right, we're going to do this. 
Um, and so they kind of just, you know, I feel like my, my list is a, a tribute to Steven Spielberg, but, but it's not, it's not all that. I promise. <laughs> well, um, he just so happens to be an amazing filmmaker. Yeah. It's a tribute to all movies, but mostly Steven Spielberg movies. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's, that's exactly what this I, is. I see what you did there. So, um, uh, and to piggyback on what you were saying earlier, uh, Red Dawn was the first PG-13 movie in August 10th. 1984 uh gremlins came out it looks like in june yeah see yeah it, it was it was just one of, I, I think that's such a cool little thing um something that's really interesting about Jimmy. it the script the script went through a lot of different drafts and the original drafts were way darker more people died the gremlins actually ate humans instead of just not eating you know humans um and the main villain stripe um who is the main gremlin. He was actually originally not supposed to come out of Ma Gizmo. He was supposed to be Gizmo. So Gizmo was supposed to turn into Stripe and be the main bad guy, which I thought would have changed and really, really added that darker point and torn turn to it. Um, but been too sad. Steve, it would have been. And Steven Spielberg made the call. He's like, Nope, we're not going to do that. Gizmo is really cute. And I think he needs to be there throughout the whole film. <laughs> of course he did um, because he's a genius. So, yeah, absolutely. And so it's it's one of those. And, and if you haven't seen Gremlins, please, it, it's not it's it is scary, but not re- like it's there are so many good parts of that. And it, it's so funny. Um, the Gremlins really just kind of personify what I really love about, like the horror comedy part of it, where it's just this ridiculousness of like they're setting them up in like really absurd, absurd places. Like when they're in the bar and these gremlins are all playing cards with each other (laughs) and the barmaid is still serving them drinks. Like she's not afraid or like scared. She's like doing her job to help these folks out, which I thought was great on its own. But then like one of the gremlins cheats in the cards and the other guy just gets a gun out and shoots him. There's just weird things like that, that just (laughs) make me laugh. It is super Looney Tunes. Which by the way, Uh, the same director of Gremlins, Joe Dante directed the Looney Tunes movie in 2003. uh, Just FYI. I know. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And also there's a a Looney Tunes with Bugs Money. I believe it's called Falling Hair, which has a Gremlin in it. Uh, And Joe Dante had, yeah, he had read the Gremlins and said that the book was one of the most influenced. Uh, so, the, also the Gremlins is a, a book written by Roald Dahl in, in 1943 about based on mischievous creatures. So, it, it all kind of just wraps up together. Disney actually considered making the film of Gremlins um, based on the Roald Dahl book, not like the the movie we got now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, it, it, it's just awesome. There's so many cool things, and I, I do want to point out to uh, our, our listeners here that that you absolutely must. Go after you see the first Gremlins. Please watch Gremlins too. Yes. Oh, I'm so not, glad you said that. So many people not, give it too much flack for it, and I oh, just think it's so much fun. It is awesome. It's not nearly as scary. The tone is completely different than the first one. But the best part about it is, is I'm not sure you're going to laugh as hard at a Gremlins movie as you will in Gremlins <laughs> Two. There's so many good, good gags and scenes and sequences that just permeate that film. Like when they're doing the shadow puppets oh, <laughs> on the man. screen and then you have this intelligent gremlin interviewing people and like, it's just, it's, it's wonderful. I love and adore. I think the second movie I, I actually may like more than the first one, but the first one is horror and the second one is really comedy. And so I had to put, put the first one on there, but um, 
Yeah, this this was really my childhood horror film. Like it, it was. It just mm-hmm. I, you know when I was a child, it was Gremlins and it was uh, the birds that I really like watched. And I, I have a fun little story about the birds that we can talk about later. But uh, yeah, it, it, does anybody anybody else have anything they want to add to Gremlins? Does anybody have it on their list? Um, it was not on my list, but I totally agree with you that it was definitely like my childhood horror film as well. I mean, it was at least the introduction to my mm-hmm. love of it. I mean, it was, you know, my mom was very protective about the kinds of films that I watch in the sense that, like, if anything was going to scare me and things like that. And if she felt like it was going to scare me, she would force me to watch the behind the scenes of bonus featurettes of the DVD before watching the film. And this was one where she felt like she didn't need to show me that. She was like, you know what? I think you can handle this one. And I just fell in love with it. I had to get my own gizmo and I did. I had my own gizmo and he was so fluffy and cute. And he made the noises that, um, Oh, who is it? Howie? Yes. uh, I was just about to say that Howie Mandel was the voice for gizmo and Frank, Frank Welker was the voice for stripe. And then also in the movie, you get Peter Cullen, who does um, uh, some of the voices as well. So mm-hmm. if you don't know those three names and voice acting, like, hi, Mandel, you, you should have an idea who, who he is. But Frank Welker is an incredible voice actor. He did the voice of Megatron in the original Transformers movie and did hit, like has done several things after that. Yes. And Peter Cullen, um, I believe Peter Cullen did the voice. Um, he did a lot of other little things little special um, parts of it too, but he, um, he was, he's, he's Optimus Prime. Like he yeah. is Optimus Prime. Like there's, I think there's only like a few pieces of Transformers uh, media out there where Peter Cullen isn't Optimus Prime. Cause like that's his role. And so to kind of see some of these amazing voice actors, you know, do the gremlin special effects and, and the Mogwai and, and the little song that, that, that Gizmo oh. sings. It's it just really everything about that just is like it's a it's a wonderful film and, and it adds a horror comedy element to it that, that I just I really love. That's a great top five film. I totally wish I thought about that because that totally would go up there, but I'm glad with my <laughs> top five, so I'm not gonna knock down any of my other ones. Stick but to your guns. <laughs> yeah. And um, also anything- Aaron already chose it, so there you go. Well, yeah, there we go. It's, yeah. <laughs> I think you and I, Fabi, probably are going to have one that we could agree on, like Matt and I did, but uh, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll have to see. Right, uh, Matt. Do you have anything you want to share about Gremlins? Do you love it? Do you hate it? Do you do you are you indifferent towards it? Oh no, I love it. It's fun. It's definitely a must uh, must watch around Christmas time. Um, I also like some of the uh, more B rated uh, imitators, such as uh, Critters. Uh, the, oh yeah. There's so Gremlins definitely kind of started a span of tiny creature movies in the '80s. Uh, solid choice, Matt. Sweet. Didn't we go into one of the houses uh, that they used on the the film set at? Uh, we went the to Warner Brothers the, studio. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, we saw outside of his house, I believe. That was uh, filmed on the uh, WB studio backlot. Yeah, it was pretty cool to see. I mean, Wait. like that that house has been used for so many other films, but like mainly Gremlins is like the main attraction for that one. And I love that they still kept it, but they just gut out the insides and just do it for another film. But it was pretty cool. Yeah, it's it's wonderful. Um, 
I would I would be um, remiss for not mentioning to the um, amazing comedic performance, even though it was played seriously of uh, Judge Reinhold, who is just a fantastic actor. He All does right, so fantastic. many things that I love. Uh, he's great. Everything about him, it, it, just the characters he plays, it just make me so happy. Uh, but yeah, my favorite holiday is Christmas. My I love snow in any sort of setting. Like you put snow in a video game or a movie, I'm automatically gonna like those scenes more. So really, the Gremlins is like just an amalgamation of all, like lots of things that I love. Uh, and we so, all yeah, love Jeff they, Miller. So yes, um, <laughs> I, I have a, a small thing that we're gonna do a pause podcast halftime. Okay. Um, that um, I want to share with you guys. I will give Max an extra point on what am I watching if you can guess the movie without any clues or questions. Of, I switched movies from Poltergeist, by the way. Um, I will give you the year it was made and that it's a horror film. And if you guess it correctly, we're going to add a point for Max. Okay. For Max or for Matt? Max. I have no points. It's just okay. Max. Oh, oh yeah. okay. Gotcha. Sorry. You guys are, are subbed in right now, Mac. You know, it's like a tag team wrestling where you guys have tapped him out and he's on the sidelines right now. <laughs> um, this movie was made in 1981. Oh, of course. America, like, we're so many... Is that your final guess that you want to you wanna throw down? Uh, but there are so many others that were in 1981. <laughs> I'm not. No, that's not my final answer. All right, you guys think about it for a second. Um, I will gush on on Gremlins a little bit more. the 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 favorite uh, killing scene obviously is is the microwave. Grossed me out to no to no desire. My favorite scene of the whole whole movie though, when I was a kid and just made me roll on the floor laughing so hard was um, the theater scene when they're all singing Snow White together and oh, singing along with this too funny. And, and, I actually watched Snow White right after I watched Gremlins. Um, and the sequences in the movie are out of sequence. Um, so, like, they portray the opening sequence of the movie as being the um, the dwarf singing. And then it goes to Snow White cleaning up the house. And I just watched the movie and Snow White cleans up the house before they get into their hi-ho song and walk home. And I thought that was really interesting <laughs> that, like... Oh, you're right about that. Yeah, I was like, because I, w- I really wanted to hear the, the, the hi-ho song, and I thought I had missed it based on what was in Gremlins, and I'm like looking back, and I was like, wait a second. No, I didn't miss it yet. What Gremlins portrayed those movies, like, sequences out of out of order, which is great. <laughs> Nobody probably noticed, but, like, still. Uh, Did you know they had to do security checks every time anybody left the, the set of Gremlins because the animatronics for the gremlins were so expensive i mean like we're talking thousands and thousands of dollars that they had to make sure nobody was taking them home with them oh yeah Uh, yeah that's awesome all right folks ma fabi i think you're next on the movies okie dokie um I guess I'll keep going in order. It's it's tough because I'm excited for some other ones that are coming up in my list. Yeah, but I'm going to go in too. order on the, the times. So I'm going to go with the ever popular Jaws 1975. Oh, yes. Yes. Directed by Steven Spielberg and screenplay written by Peter Benchley, the author of the novel Jaws and Carl Gottlieb. So the summary. And if you ugh, I would hope that everyone has seen this film. And if you haven't, please rush to go find it and watch it it is it still stands to this day i think 
But anyways, summary is a man eating great white shark attacks beachgoers at a summer resort town, prompting police chief Martin Brody, marine biologist Matt Hooper, and professional shark hunter Quint to hunt the fish. And of course, the music done by the amazing, incomparable John Williams, who, if you don't know, has done several scores, including Superman, um, Indiana Jones, Star Wars, you name it, all those classic uh, scores that you can think about. John Williams probably did that. Um, And what was interesting about that is that, you know, Steven Spielberg, he... (laughs) So there were a lot of problems with making the film. Um, One of the big things that this film accomplished was that it was actually the first major motion picture to be shot in the middle of the ocean. So while that's an accomplishment, it also came with a lot of faults because the animatronic that was playing Bruce the shark. They never call him Bruce, but that's what they call him (laughs) because apparently it's Steven Spielberg's lawyer's name. And so they decided to call the shark Bruce after the lawyer. So um, the shark kept uh, breaking down. It was just not working. Um, It wasn't moving properly. It was literally being decayed and rotted and uh, rusted by the salt water of the ocean. And it was very difficult to get good shots of the shark. So the thing is, Everybody loves the fact that in Jaws, you don't really see the creature or the monster until towards the end. And it wasn't done on purpose. It was because the shark wasn't working. But it created such an intense feeling of, oh, my God, this shark must be so huge and nasty. This, oh, my God, it's killing kids. It's killing people. Like, what's going on? And... Um, when Steven Spielberg was realizing that, okay, well, I need to have a good score with this. Like he immediately called John Williams and knowing that the shark wasn't in too many shots. Um, John Williams came up with the brilliant score to just build that suspense as you're in the opening scene. There's a, a first person shot of, from the shark's perspective and it's just that score that's just playing and it's just like hunting for its next meal. And it's just so brilliant. And I love that when I hear stories about people saying how this movie made them afraid to go into the water because I mean, sharks are out there and sharks are real, you know? And it's one of those things where like as much as Jaws, it is considered a horror movie, but I don't think people give it that horror um, mm-hmm. title as much as they they think because you know it, it unlike a lot of these movies that we've already been talking about sharks are definitely real and they have definitely attacked and killed people maybe not as dramatic as they make it in this movie but it's one of those things that you just can't help and whenever you go inside the ocean at the beach you just have that in the back of your mind like oh got to be careful there's probably a shark out there and i think this film really put it out there like that also this was the first film that was uh considered a blockbuster there were other films in the past that um you know hit um 
I guess like the the box office numbers that they wanted, but they never gave it a, a title. They never gave it blockbuster. Um, and this this film founded that film genre. So now all these uh, summer hit films that you see that are titled blockbuster film of the year that all originated from Jaws. And I just everything about this movie is fantastic. I love it. I agree, one hundred percent. I love Jaws so much. I, <laughs> one of my yeah, favorites. It's, it Nothing really is. It's, really <laughs> I know, not really. It's just I'm like, sorry. yep. You, no, it's perfect. You nailed it. Like, it, it's it's. I watched. I've I've seen Jaws before, but really sat down and watched it. Like, really watched it for the first time. Like in the last year, and it's just yeah. It's it's wonderful. My only fun fact is, um, I believe Quentin. Right, that's his yeah. name. Quint. Quint. Yes. Quint. Quint. Quint is played by. One of the same uh, actors, I think, is this is is his name Red Grant? No, it's Robert Shaw, but he was in That's a 007 movie. Robert Shaw, Red Grant is his name, I believe, in the 007 movie. That 007 movie is from uh, Russia with Love, and it's one yes. of the best 007 movies out there. And that was my point was connecting because in an earlier podcast, as you all may have heard, my favorite film franchise is James Bond, so I wanted to make that connection. Absolutely. It is a great uh, James Bond film, I gotta say. Out of all the ones oh, that I've seen, so good. it's up there. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. The only other thing that I wanted to say was um, there's a scene in Jaws where they talk about the, um, the Hiroshima bomb and delivering it, and the people on the, the planes that were delivering the bomb, they crashed into the middle of the ocean and they unfortunately were surrounded by a bunch of uh, great white sharks and it pretty much killed them off one by one. And this was a real story and it didn't happen to the actor who played Quint, but he's the one that tells the story in the film. And I think that's just such a haunting monologue that he gives. And it's just when he's like talking about like, they're all pounding and hollering and screaming to keep the fish away, but nothing's working. It, they just, Oh, it's just so brilliant. I think that one of the greatest piece of acting in cinema history, I think. Absolutely. All right. Probably one of my favorite scenes. Show me the way to go home. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, Anyways, continue. (laughs) Matt, go for it. You're up. Let's get your uh, let's get your midpoint film, and and then we'll we'll finish up here with our last few. Let's see here. So my next movie. And is on my list is actually The Burning, 1981. Woohoo! Yep. The Burning is great. So if nobody had, for those that have never seen The Burning, it is another great example of summer camp horror. Uh, just like Friday the 13th, Sleepaway Camp. Uh, there have been several imitators jumping off that. And... A janitor at a summer camp is accidentally burned severely from a prank. Years later, he is released from an institute and returns to the camp to take his revenge. So, this is actually, there are several reasons why this is actually one of my favorite movies. It um, is, Friday the 13th is a great movie. It is a great franchise. It spawned one of the biggest names in villains. Um, as well as I think it, he actually has the highest kill count. 
But there's something about the burning that I do love. So one thing that is actually kind of a fun little tidbit is Tom Savini, who is essentially the godfather of gore. He turned down Friday the 13th Part 2 to work on this because Friday the 13th Part 2 and The Burning came out the same year. They actually both have a lot of very similar scenes, and it was kind of a race to see which could be which could come out first. Um, fun, fun fact about The Burning is that it was actually conceived years before it was actually uh, filmed, so it wasn't necessarily a group of people that watched Friday the 13th and said, let's do the same thing to make money. Um, so essentially Cropsy is the name of the villain and the Cropsy killer is actually a pretty um, infamous campfire tale in the New York and J New Jersey area. Uh, he essentially is, uh, that's essentially where they got the inspiration from for this movie. This is the film that also launched the careers of acclaimed producers Harvey and Bob Weinstein, as well as Jason Alexander, Fisher Stevens, and Holly Hunter. Everybody, a lot of people know who Jason Alexander is, considered that he was from Seinfeld. He played George Costanza. He also did several other roles um, after the show ended. He pretty much plays himself with hair. <laughs> uh, which is actually a lot of fun to watch because he is essentially a teenage version of George Costanza, only slightly more confident. You just never thought he had hair in his entire life until this exactly. movie. Exactly. <laughs> so the movie is worth watching alone for that. Uh, Fisher Stevens, he actually went on to do a bunch of little roles. Uh, he did some television stuff. He um, was in an episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. <laughs> he yes, was the he one was. that gave Patty's Pub the worst review possible, and they inadvertently kidnap him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's a great episode. It is. It is. It was actually his first film credit, um, and he actually really? did a pretty good job for it being his first movie. He also went on to do other bigger films, such as uh, Short Circuit 2. Uh, he was in Super Mario Brothers. Um, oh, that's right. Yes, yeah. He we was, watched uh, that together, the three of us. Yeah, we did. He, he was <laughs> he was Iggy. He was one of the uh, the the, cro the his little crones. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He's in something recently too that I've been watching, it and I cannot put my finger on it. He was uh, well. To, he he was he was in Hail Caesar. He was in Isle of Dogs and Grand Budapest Hotel. Um, A lot of Wes man. Anderson, or yeah. is it Coen Brothers? No, it's Wes Anderson. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they, uh, Hail Caesar is uh, Coen Brothers, and uh, Isle of Dogs is, and Grand Budapest is Wes Anderson. Right, right. Okay. So you're technically right on both of those accounts. <laughs> and it's, it's one of those movies that, while it's pretty much a uh, imitator, you know, to, um, you know, um, Friday optimize the, the well. I was going to say optimize off of the uh, slasher genre. It stands alone. It's got a lot of creative kills. I don't think of any other movies that has gardening shears as a main weapon. Uh, <laughs> it's got an excellent scene where several camp kids are killed at once. That's actually one of the most infamous scenes in the whole movie. 
there's a lot of reasons to like the movie. If you haven't checked it out, uh, please try to find it if you I can think, and give it a I shot. It's on Amazon Prime, right? I think it is, but let me double check on that. Yeah. TBD. Because I'm pretty um, sure, Matt, you texted me like a couple weeks ago that like, oh, the burning's on Amazon Prime right now. Because I think I was asking you for a wreck and you uh, you did that. It's on Shutter. It is not oh, on Amazon cool. Prime. I think you can buy it off Amazon Prime, but it, I, mean, I think you can buy it off Amazon to watch. But it's yeah. not. Well, free everyone should get Shutter anyway. Shutter is fantastic. Yes, and it's not expensive. No, it's not it's at worth all. it. Though the last drive-in alone is uh, is worth it. But there's several things that's actually kind of interesting also in the movie. So uh, the director actually shot a lot of footage of the killer doing the actual kills, but decided to cut back on the actual shots of the killer to keep the character more frightening for mm, I wonder a where they reveal. got influence from. I wonder where. <laughs> <laughs> and one thing that's also kind of cool is uh, they use a lot of POV shots from the perspective of Cropsey. And considering that he was burned and had a very uh, distorted look to his face, his vision was distorted and clouded, uh, they actually used... Um, uh, jelly in the film in the uh, the lens of the camera to kind of give it that cloudy look. Oh, I love that. Mm-hmm. You know what scene I very much love in the burning is going back to like you said, it's a very good standalone slasher uh, film, not unlike Friday the Thirteenth and all those other ones, but um, the campfire scene when the uh, the counselors are talking to the kids about the story of Cropsy and they give that line, the uh, don't, don't look, he'll see you. Don't breathe. He'll hear you. Don't move. You're dead. And it's just like, so like it sets the mood for who this antagonist is and just how dangerous he could possibly be to these campers. And I, I just love that. I think it's just a fun scene. And, um, the infamous massacre scene that I was referring to earlier actually is one of the reasons why this film was also put on the UK video nasties list that we were referring Ooh. to earlier from Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Interesting. Yeah, so, that is interesting. Mm-hmm. I seen I watched the burning off of your recommendation. I think the first time last year, and I was thoroughly happy with it. I yeah. don't have a lot of memory or or can talk too deeply of it, but but I enjoyed it quite a bit. I. I I love the camp setting for, for pretty much any kind of film. And so, especially in horror, I think it's a wonderful little setting. And uh, yeah, I had well, a great time with it. So well, One of the absolutely. nice things about that setting is that it um, it uses, you know, the fun that all the kids are having throughout the first two, the first uh, act and half of the, fir- of the second act to make you feel comfortable with what's going on before horror starts to settle in. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the things that I do like about movies that have young, uh, young adults or children in is because a majority of the time it's all about the movies are about them having fun. Yeah. And their nefarious acts leading to the killings, obviously. Mm-hmm. Actually, now that you mention <laughs> it, yeah, there is like, you know, how there's the whole um, uh, trope. That, you know, if you have sex or do drugs, then you get killed and things like that. And I think that it's interesting that in a lot of those films, like in Friday the 13th or in Nightmare on Elm Street, they're mainly adults. I mean, they're playing teenagers, but they're mainly adults. But the majority of the people in The Burning are all, like, kids. 
just regular mm-hmm. kids. And I think that it gives that realistic vibe to the campsite look, you know, because I mean, let's face it, we've all seen some camper that's supposed to be like the hot babe, and she, but she's playing a teenager, but she's clearly like closer to her 30s. And, right. you know, it kind of takes you out of it a little bit. But for the burning, you just you you totally get that setting with the characters that they chose. Yes, uh, it's not like um, some of the females in Sleepaway Camp 2 that are, you know, they could easily be models. Like, right. to say <laughs> that there aren't pretty girls in the movie, it's just, they're very, they're, they're a lot normal looking, you know. They're mm-hmm. definitely girls that you would see attending a summer camp. Yeah, yeah, I like that added aspect of realism there. It's, mm-hmm. It always does take me out when you're like, well, she's 35, you know, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Um, you would definitely not be spending two weeks in a summer camp in upstate New York. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. You look oh, like you cool. should be doing a photo shoot in a penthouse. <laughs> <laughs> or at least being oh, a groupie. Man. Excellent. All right. I did like the burning a lot. And and a lot of these antagonists are going to make our, our battle royale. So I'm excited that we're kind of getting a little preview of of who they are and some background before we get into that. That that probably maybe even a two parter episode. Um, to put uh, we're gonna go. Cool thing. Uh, real quick before I finish off on the uh, the burning. One thing that I like about it is that considering that after Friday the 13th came out, which was more of a mystery movie because Nobody knew exactly who the killer was until the end. Not going to say any spoilers, just in case our <laughs> listeners haven't watched the original 1980 film. But they didn't want to necessarily do that again. They didn't want to have a, oh, who's the killer? So you know right off from the very beginning who Cropsy is. And it kind of set the stage for that. And the special effects for Cropsy's, because he gets burned. Like the, It's right in the beginning, the... the the antagonist is a burn victim and the special effects obviously done by the amazing Tom Savini. Uh, it, it, it's just so realistic. Those third degree burns that you see and it's just so gross and you just feel that like, oof, like that pain that he must have felt being under mm-hmm. fire like that. Being on fire hurts. It's not fun at all. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> I can tell you from experience, it is not a fun, fun, fun thing to go through. Oof. I'll take your word for it. Yeah, so, yeah. I don't want to experience it. You take over, Aaron. What's your next mm-hmm. one? I absolutely will. My next film also happens to be set around the Christmas time. And it, it is my... Um, I've now discovered, I think... And I want to ask this question at the very end for you guys, so I'll save it until then. But maybe my one of my most influential years of horror for me, because this also came out in 1974. But this movie is Black Christmas. <gasps> I'm so glad you brought this up. And... It's it's just so well paced. The it's definitely the slasher kind of vibe to it, but it's much different than that um, because you don't really ever, you know. I think I think you. It's not really a slasher because you're not really using a knife, but it has that same similar vibe um, to it. And it's something that's really interesting in this is that they used um, college students as the setting instead of high schoolers. And they wanted to show that um, th- these these kids are, are not just like dumb bikini college students. Like they're smart people. Like they have like they're there for a purpose. Um, they have, they're like 
thinking about their careers and going forward. And then you have this killer who's just wrecking all of that. And then you have some subplots that are, that are really emotional subplots in there for, for folks and the varied characters of, of their, you know, not everybody is the same. And I don't know if, I mean, should we, I don't, I mean, it's hard to, to not spoil. I wouldn't spoil it. It's too good of a movie to spoil. I think so. And I think but the like, ending reveals itself in the most perfect way possible. So, Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and, and I think the ending shot is really, <gasps> really... Eerie. Um, it's representation of, of the entire film. And that's why I love this film so much, because I feel like it's an art horror film. And, sure. and so there's some... There, the scenes are really beautiful. When... I'm going to spoil this one. When, when the killer, you know, kills... Uh, uh, it's not Claire. Who is it? it? It kills her with the the glass figurines. Oh, um, sure. uh, what's uh, her face from Wonder Woman? Barb. Um, not Wonder Woman. Jesus, Superman. Yeah, her, yeah, her name is Barb in um in the movie. Yes, and, and she, that that scene alone for me like almost puts it on top because it does a, such a good job of foreshadowing that you know a few um you know ten fifteen minutes earlier in the movie where she's trying to go to sleep and it pans over her room. And it shows the the killing weapons, and then you see like the slow motion and the the glass against the blood is it's it's beautiful. Like it's such a beautiful shot. Um, yeah, I, I I love this movie. I think it, it really it gets it gets the vibe down of like what Halloween is um, as far as like the movie, but it's done in like a little different setting, and it doesn't just feel kind of like generic slasher. It feels very imaginative and. And very, it's wonderful. Um, mm-hmm. And it's set around Christmas, which is one of my favorite times of the year. Um, I feel like a lot of the characters are are very realistic in there. Mrs. Mack is one of the greatest. She's so <laughs> yes, good. Yes, she is. Um, She's so and cool. She is awesome. The The interesting thing about this, and, and this is the one thing that, I, that really I have, um, and then I'll kind of pass it off to you folks for uh, your love of this, but the... The movie came out in 1974, um, but it was supposed to be released um, later on 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 TV, um, and it was there was a controversy around it. Um, so the TV, I'm not going to name what the TV title is going to be because it's going to ruin the film um, for what it is for you. I think they did a really poor job of of naming the TV TV movie of it, um, but it was supposed to come out. On TV on January 28th, 1978. And that was a few months after the um, Ted Bundy killings in Florida um, at the university, Florida State University. So they did the smart thing and they removed it from uh, from from that showing. So they ended up not not showing it, which I, I kind of have a really big kind of high respect for the network for doing that. Um, because I think they very easily could have done that and made money off of it, but decided to respect um, everybody involved in, in, in the very real uh, tragedies that happened. And so uh, I always that that always kind of just kind of, you know, impressed me a lot um, that I don't feel like you get a lot with with networks and, and them making the right call on those kind of things. But, uh, yeah, it, it's it's amazing. I think you should watch it. I think if you want a good baseline of kind of where some horror movies come from. I, I don't know. I think black Christmas is, is a great kind of like unknown 
It's always like, you know, it happens with every single film genre and everybody knows this is that you get Halloween, right? But nobody talks about Black Christmas before Halloween, you know, mm-hmm. and, and so it's that's it's not they're not one to one, obviously, but they are very similar vibes. Um, and so it's one of those things where there's always some sort of amazing little kind of I don't even want to say indie film that kind of catapults everybody else onto these things. Um, but but Black Christmas is definitely one of those. And I think it's absolutely worth a watch for everybody. For well, you sure. know who directed it, right? Um, I do know who directed it. I have it right here. I don't know it off the top of my head. Bob um, Clark, Clark, who did A Christmas Story, another Christmas oh, film. Great. Yes. That's amazing. He yeah. did, he did uh, Porky's. Well, I mean, he did a bunch of other things, but notably, he was famous yeah. for A Christmas Story. Yeah. And Black Christmas, of course. Um, which is interesting that you say that it was very similar to Halloween because the director of Halloween, Jordan Carpenter, took influence from Black Christmas to yeah. create the character of Michael Myers, a.k.a. Did- Halloween. Yeah, and you can absolutely see that for sure. Oh, like, yeah. It's not, a, like I said, Hello, like Black Christmas is interesting because it has a very similar vibe to what we now kind of know as slasher flicks. But but I don't really consider it really that, even though it kind of is, just because there's, it's it's more like the creative slasher where he's not just using a, a, a knife, you know, mm-hmm. or a machete, um, which I know not all the kills and Friday and Michael Myers and, and Halloween movies are done with his knives and with the machetes and that kind of stuff. Um, but Nobody's they stalking are, them. He's like literally calling yeah. them and leaving them all these eerie messages and just oh, disgusting yeah. things. It just leaves you on edge. Like, oh, it's just like a it, bad it feeling. It's just one of those. You're just like the character in of itself is so creepy and the setting behind Christmas and the snow and and just really everything. Like, it's hard to talk about how much I love this film and the fact that we can't talk about like the ending and like what the killer really is and that kind of stuff. But I really want to stay away from that a lot just because sure. that that's the crux of everything on this, you know, like the, the scenes of where they're trying to figure out who he is and what's going on. It, it really adds a ton of tension, especially towards the end where they finally figure things out. Um, and, and kind of, and I, I don't, I don't, you know more about the history of horror than I do, but I feel like it definitely kind of started and it's hard to say what it started and what it really did for the horror movies without saying what it is, but it definitely kind of started a, a very like, oh, this is this kind of killer movie, you know, like Absolutely. Well, several, this is, several whole, yeah. uh, slasher troops are are in this movie that kind of started, um, you know, the label of those troops for for the genre or for that specific genre. So, for example, mm-hmm. it, it's uh, definitely one of along with Texas Chainsaw Massacre. They both came out, um, you know, the same year, but that both of those pretty much started the uh, the final girl uh, trope. Mm, yeah. Um, the whole, you know, oh, if you have sex or if you drink or, you know, you if you're doing something that is going to correlate you to be a poor person, you're on the chopping block. But your pure ones are considered eligible for uh being a final girl, but there's just several things that this movie does that even though it's, you know, a pioneer for those tropes, it still does it differently. Yeah. And it's really interesting. We talk about like it kind of starting that because the, the last girl has a very 
I believe what people would consider something amoral and what she wants to do. Exactly. But, you know, some people don't. I don't want to spoil it for anybody because it's a very main part of the film. I know. Um, and it, it, it's it, it's just great. Everything about that movie, I, I love. It's 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 honestly it's a comfort horror for me. Like just kind of sit down and just enjoy the ride as I go on when when I'm just kind of feeling in that sort of mood. It's nice to have it in the background and also focus. It's also great to to show people for the first time. Uh, yes, it's, it's definitely one of those movies that has a large, has a huge following. But I can, I would not be surprised if I spoke to somebody who did like horror and they said, "Oh, I've never seen Black Christmas." Yep, I, I actually Max, who who's usually on the podcast, has never seen um, Black Christmas, and he he loves horror. And my friend um, Rob, who is a huge horror fan as well, I don't believe he ever saw Black Christmas until I showed it to him. I don't even know if I showed it to him. I'm not sure if he's even seen it yet, but I said he needs to watch it, so I hope it's on his list this year um, to go through. It's but, a must-watch. It absolutely is. Absolutely a must-watch. Alright, that's enough on my love of Black Christmas. <laughs> Fabi, it is your time. What's your second... We're getting down to the to the wire here. We only got a few films left. I'm so sorry. I know that I'd love to ramble on about like getting super passionate about these films because they're they're just <laughs> all like so amazing in every yeah. way and just so many things to talk about. So I'll try to keep my next ones as oh no concise I'm not, as I'm possible. Not, yeah, I'm not saying you can need to short it up at all at all. You know, it's, you guys are the <laughs> one that ha- that's three hours you know ahead of me, not me. Like I still have the, the night is young over here. That's true, and I'm sorry, Matt. I know you have work early in the morning, so I'll definitely try to. Give it my best short well, I work from review. Home, so I don't really care. <laughs> All right, that's fair. All right, so my next film actually is a great follow up to uh, Black Christmas. It's actually Halloween from 1978, um, awesome. directed by John Carpenter and screenplay by John Carpenter and Deborah Hill. So, um, like we said before, uh, Black Christmas actually influenced John Carpenter. He was floored by Black Christmas that he just needed to get home and start writing and collaborating with Deborah Hill right away. And it, it, we came up with, well, they came up with uh, what we know now as Michael Myers. Uh, quick summary, he, uh, a mental patient uh, escapes from a sanitarium. Um, he had previously murdered his teenage sister 15 years ago when he was just 16, six years old, sorry, not 16, six years old on Halloween night. So after 15 years of his sister's murder, he escapes and he returns to his hometown in Haddonfield, Illinois, which, by the way, is not a real place, where he stalks a female babysitter and her friends. And meanwhile, while all of this is happening, Michael Myers' psychiatrist is in pursuit of him because he knows him the best more than anyone, especially his parents. So I (laughs) so out of all of the legendary horror icons that there are i have to say michael myers is my absolute favorite my number one pick out of leatherface jason freddy chucky you name it michael myers is number one for me um i think what sells it for me is that you never hear him talk He's not, and Jason doesn't talk either. Leatherface has some groans and whatever, but just the way uh, Jason that, breathes. Yeah, right. <laughs> and just, just the way that Michael Myers just walks around with just his patience, but like you just kind of hear his breathing, and it's just very. It, it's 
like I said, I mean, he's he's a stalker. So it, it's almost very much like Black Christmas where it's a stalker pursuing these younger people and it's really creepy. And um, I can go into so many details about Halloween, <laughs> but I'm going to try to keep it concise. Jamie Lee Curtis is the final girl of Halloween. And like we've mentioned before with Psycho, uh, her mother is Janet Lee, who plays Marion Crane in Psycho, who was the woman in the shower scene, the infamous shower scene. And she pretty much kind of gave her the hookup to be in this film. And Jamie Lee Curtis went to go and do a couple other John Carpenter movies and then kind of steered away from horror for a little bit because she didn't want to be typecast in the horror genre. And then now, now that there's a huge cult following behind Halloween and the series itself. She's coming back to the limelight and of course now she's um, well she she's doing the revamp of Halloween 2018 and then the one that's coming well it's been pushed back now to next year um, and then a third one after that. Um, I think what's interesting is that there there's so many different storylines that Halloween takes uh, from the original, I mean, like we go from uh, Michael Myers is ac- is actually Jamie Lee Curtis's brother to uh, Jamie Lee Curtis has a daughter to completely ignoring that she had a daughter and just had a son. Um, and it's just it goes all over the place. But I think as much as I love all of those sequels that it goes off of, like you mentioned before earlier, Halloween four, I love, love, love that movie. Shout out to Daniel Harris. Uh, but I think Halloween takes it back to its roots before Friday the 13th came out, before Nightmare on Elm Street came out. Michael Myers is definitely the main slasher in my book. And I think it's just great. And I definitely agree with you. For me, Jason's probably my favorite just because those kills in some of the sequels get so ridiculous and entertaining. Uh, (laughs) However, I do say, I do feel that uh, overall, I do like the Halloween franchise, I think, a little more. Um, there are a fair amount of Friday the 13th movies that I don't rewatch nearly as much as others. Um, but H- Halloween, Halloween 2, 3, 4, 5, they, you know, H2O get a lot of rewatch from me. Um, uh, one of the things that I actually really liked about... Um, one of the things that I actually really liked about uh, H2O is that Janet Lee is in it uh, playing yes. one of the teachers and she is actually driving the car from Psycho. And oh. there is a really fun little moment uh, between Janet Lee um, and, and Jamie, Jamie Lee, Lee Curtis. Curtis. Yeah. That, as Janet Lee is walking away, you kind of hear a little, a little bit of the psycho theme, which I think is really, is a really fun meta way of paying tribute uh, to the both of them, the fact that they're mother and daughter, and you know, essentially the uh, early days of horror, not early, early, like say, like you know, from like the tens of the thirties, but essentially those the early days of a regular person uh, being a serial killer. And for those of you who don't know about H2O, it's the Halloween H2O 20 years later. um, Basically um, they kind of veer off from just going from the sequel of Halloween uh, and going straight to 20 years later after that, Michael Myers is still Jamie Lee Curtis's brother in that series. Um, 
but that is also a really great follow-up. But um, you're right. You're absolutely right. That I think overall the sequels for Halloween are just so solid. And, like in comparison to all the other series that we have. I mean, what are there? 12 Friday the 13th films? Uh, Including seven- Freddy versus Jason. There are 12 of them. Right. And uh, there's uh, eight. Nightmare on Elm Street is like eight. You, yes. Yeah. If you count the remake. Right. And out of which, all of those, there's a handful that we rewatch, but with um, Halloween. <laughs> yeah, right. But, right. Well, even even with, uh, I, and I, I dare say this, but um, Halloween Resurrection, the one with Tyra Banks and, uh, oh God, what's his name? Uh, Buster Rhymes. Buster Rhymes. Thank you. I Even <laughs> I love that one. And it's not a favorite, but it's still fun. And you still like, it, it, go, it, it just reminds you of the first film and just how dangerous of a situation someone so quiet and eerie can take you in and i just i just love it it's great that was not concise at all i apologize (laughs) no halloween is amazing i think halloween other than other than this movie that i have up next halloween is i think my most watched horror movie that i have Mm -hmm. um it didn't make my list just because i just wanted to pay i wanted to vary my list a little bit and kind of pay tribute to some of the things that like the, you know, like I wanted to get more than just kind of one tone genre in there. And, and so I wanted to throw in comedy. Horror. It, it's it's one of those that like was very close to my list just because I, I love Halloween so much. And I think I think I'm more not impressed, but I may lean to I need to watch it again. But I think I almost lean to liking the second one almost more than the first one. I just like the the interesting way it goes um, and the continuation there. And a lot of the kills are really fun. Yeah, John Carpenter uh, would disagree with you. He regrets. Oh, for sure. The, he regrets the decision of making Michael Myers um, Jamie Lee Curtis's brother, but it's yeah. still a great sequel. I still agree with you. I love it. It's awesome. I, I really enjoy that sequel a lot, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's it's. I I love Halloween. It's just so good. You know, it's the one movie that if if I it's the, I mean it's my it's the movie I start people out on. Like if I have folks who aren't really necessarily into horror all that much, I we just watch Halloween first. And I said <laughs> this is the one we're going to start with, and then we're going to build off from there. And and if you like this one, then I'm I have faith that I can show you other things that you will also enjoy. But if you don't like this one, then we're never going to be friends again. No, <laughs> it's, it's it's great. I, I I do. I love I love love Halloween. Um, oh, and speaking of 007, Donald Pleasance. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. There is. My next movie actually has another 007 connection too, but <gasps> like Donald Donald Pleasance is is so good in this, and he is so good in 007 as well. Like, ah, oh, the way he it's it's fantastic. I, I yeah, I love just how uh, you know as the movies go on, his character as the psychiatrist of, of Michael Myers gets a little more crazed, and he gets a little crazy. Yeah. But, in the, but in this first one. He just he he knows just how dangerous Michael Myers is. Even mm-hmm, exactly. even without saying a single word, Michael Myers. I mean, he knows just by looking in his eyes what he calls the devil's eyes. Um, yeah, just like how potentially deathly that you know it could be for him going into Haddonfield again. And he just warns everybody, but of course, it goes unheard. So yeah, yeah, excellent. All right. 
Matt, my friend, I believe you have your second, and then we're all going to get to our tops, or what could be called our tops. So my next on my top five is actually The Thing from 1982. Awesome. Yes. So basically, for those that have not seen it, uh, the movie is about Kurt Russell and his band of researchers in a USA research station in in Antarctica. And essentially, uh, there is a nearby Norwegian research station that has had a run-in with an alien life form. And essentially, the alien life form uh, escapes to the U.S. base and from there, Kurt Russell and his uh, his band have to figure out what they need to do to survive this situation. Essentially, the alien is an assimilation creature that absorbs its victims, and basically, that's how it uh, it spreads and replicates. So, one of the things that is great about this movie is the sense of isolation and paranoia. Uh, because pretty much as soon as they find out what the thing is capable of, nobody trusts each other. And it's one of those movies that is extremely well acted. Kurt Russell does a great job. Uh, he is, you know, um, pretty much, he doesn't exactly act circles around everybody, but he does stand out. Wilford Brimley is also great in it, who plays Dr. Blair. Uh, so Also the diabetes guy. The diabetes folk. Yes. That, and I, I want to I wanna shout out to Keith David. Yes, I was about uh, to say Keith David is also great, who wouldn't who's, sing that is also excellent about John Carpenter movies, which this movie is also directed by John Carpenter, who also did Halloween. He really likes to um, rehire familiar actors from his previous projects. And one thing that he uh, took from this movie was hiring Keith David on for. Um, they oh, live. gosh. Uh, yes, they live. Thank you. I You're welcome. Had, a, had a quick had a quick moment of a. Uh, cloud there right there so um and he's great in both movies but he really does shine in the thing and i have a couple of a couple of fun um trivia for the thing so rob botten who was the head special uh special effects uh, makeup creator and designer he was only 22 at the time and he did He's basically the bread and butter of this movie. One of the things, uh, <laughs> things, uh, one of the um, <laughs> cool moments that. about the thing, <laughs> his the special effects are fantastic. You really feel how gross and dirty of a situation that could be just by looking at some of those puppets. And a shout out to him for doing such a bang up job. Uh, the movie actually. Um, when it came out, critics and audiences uh, both did not like it. And one of the fun things about it is that the score, who was uh, who was done by uh, uh, Morricone, uh, was uh, actually nominated for a Razzie Award. So, which is odd because it's even though it's a very simple score, it's uh, it's very effective. Uh, it's got kind of like dun dun. Dun dun, which 
when you, I mean, I know that that sounds very simple, but when you actually hear it, uh, essentially one of the things that I've heard about, whether this was intentional or just kind of like a, um, somebody took that as a representation is that it almost feels like a, um, a, a human heartbeat, but not exactly, which is essentially a representation of the thing assimilating a human. It doesn't exactly know how to be human. It only knows what it is viewing. So that's one of the things that I thought was kind of a cool takeaway from the simplicity of that score. But one also cool thing about the score is that there are several segments in the score that were actually used for the film uh, The Hateful Eight. And that actually won an Oscar. So it goes to show you how taste <laughs> um, can, can uh, you know, change, change. over time. And yeah. one of the another cool thing that was uh, really interesting is that I've watched this movie with the director's commentary with uh, John Carpenter. And one of the cool things that he has mentioned in the commentary is that you can watch the movie multiple times and still not exactly know how things start. So prime example is that uh, early in the movie, the thing escapes from the Norwegian base to the U, uh, USA base in the form of a dog. They, it just looks like a normal dog. They have no idea that it is alien. So they take the dog in. When the dog is wandering around the facility early in the movie, I think this is around the 15-minute mark, we see the dog go into a room uh, that has one single person in it that we only know by the by the shadow of the person to keep with the uh you know the mis- uh the mysterious aspect of the scene none of the actors were actually used to cast that shadow it was actually dick warlock was used <gasps> as one of the actors who played michael myers in halloween 2 the shape so, Yes. So Dick Warlock was used for that shadow just to keep the audience from getting a educated guess on who the first human is assimilated. And I just think that's great. Yeah, that is awesome. I mean, what are we doing uh, with our lives if the special effects guy was only 22 years old when he created this? I mean, it's... Let's not talk about that. It's... <laughs> We're doing a podcast is what we're doing. I know. <laughs> appreciating, I know. appreciating people much more talented than we are. Our lives have been, our lives have been relegated to. If we can't oh. do, we must talk. Exactly. <laughs> One You're last right. uh, oh. tidbit for the thing before we move on to you. Uh, your next film, Aaron is that, uh, one of the se- one of the reasons that the failure of the film was well, the potential failure for the film was cited by the fact that it only it came out very shortly after E.T. the Extraterrestrial. So by then, audiences were already attached in a in a positively emotional way to aliens, and a negative alien as a villain just didn't seem to set with audiences in 1982. Yeah, that makes sense. However, are you saying Steven Spielberg did something wrong? <laughs> no, I'm saying that people <laughs> people loved what he did so right that they did they couldn't appreciate what John Carpenter did. <laughs> that's that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they uh, they 
Yeah, so the po- it was a positive uh, film with E.T. and a little bit more of a nihilistic uh, film with uh, the thing, so. Yeah. Yes, the thing is the thing is great. Uh, I I love it. I'm glad. I have nothing more to add. Everything you said about it, I enjoy, I, I, I agree with. Um, Kurt Russell's so great. I love him on everything. He's just one of my favorites. Oh. Yes, yeah. I could I could spend a podcast alone talking about uh, Kurt Russell's uh, contribution to film. Yeah, absolutely. Kurt Russell lived in a little town in Oregon for a while of his life too, which was fun. Wow. Right, right next to where I went to college, which was cool. He's also a Disney also legend. Have, he, oh, I, he is a Disney legend. I saw him do the um, candlelight processional. <gasps> oh, you I'm did. so jealous. Yeah. I, yeah, I remember it, when you did that. It was the most amazing thing I've ever seen <clears throat> live with him. Like he just had so much joy in his like body language and his smile. Like, you could just tell how much he just loved doing that. And to have somebody of his caliber come and do that for guests is just amazing. It's part of the reason why I love him so much. It's everything. Everything about that man is great. He was, I think he was filming that Santa Claus movie for Netflix at the time. So he had the big, big bushy beard and the mm-hmm. long white hair. And oh, it was awesome. <laughs> it was wonderful. So much Another, fun. And for those of you that love Kurt Russell, Obviously, you've seen Captain Ron because we all love that movie. <laughs> yes, everyone's seen that movie. Everybody's and if seen... they haven't, you need to. Captain <laughs> Ron is so great. Uh, it is. I need to watch that again. It's a great movie. All right, all right. We're, we we could get more on, on Kurt Russell for sure with yes. Escape from L.A. as well. But that's not the point and, of the of today's episode. So let's. No, why unfortunately. Don't you take it? Why don't you take it over from here and go to your next movie? I will. Final movies for everybody. And it's been a long journey. And thank you so much for, for, for joining us and being with us during this time. I know our podcasts are usually about an hour and 15 to hour and 30 oh, minutes man. long. And this one is running really long. But honestly, this is my favorite format of podcast. I would rather have a two and a half hour, two hours and 45 minute long podcast than an hour and 15. But we try to respect folks, folks time here. Uh, <laughs> it, but... This movie for me is um, on a short list of my favorite movies of all time, and it, it could just be very well one of my favorite, if not my favorite movie of all time. I know I said something different last week in the podcast, but um, it's so good. And it's just speaking about aliens and all of their joy and love. My last movie is Alien. Oh. And. It's just so I watched it the other night and I can I couldn't get enough of it. I'm actually considering watching it again tonight as, as much as I love this thing. It's it's just so good and it's so paced well. And it's H.R. Geiger. You cannot talk about aliens and, and the alien franchise in the movie without really paying homage to H.R. Geiger. What he did with the set design and the design of the alien and everything about that is so incredible to me. And the fact that they they made sure to keep you kind of on your edge of your seat because they they changed the way the alien looked almost every time you saw it um, to kind of make sure that you never really knew what was going on and what was going to happen. Um, it has so many amazing people in it with John Hurt and Ian Holm 
and it has Harry Dean Stanton in it. It's uh, Veronica Cartwright's in it, which is um, she was the child actor or one of the child actors in The Birds, which is really cool. What? Um, I didn't know that. Yeah. You you can't get away from this movie without the like beautiful, wonderful king and queen of sci-fi and horror and like everything wonderful about Sigourney Weaver. She's just this is one of her first um, films because she was relatively unknown for that. She had done a lot of Broadway before she did um, Alien. And that's really where she, where she got um, where uh, Ridley Scott and everybody else kind of like saw her on. And, and it's just it's awesome. I, I love Sigourney Weaver so much and, and her part in this movie and her love of this kind of movie because she continues to just work in these films for the rest of her life is just it, it's it's incredible the i have a couple quotes here that i found that i really want to i want to read out to you that kind of have impact for what we were talking about earlier and um ridley scott um not necessarily a quote but but he was he was keen on emphasizing that that hor- the horror and alien rather than like a fantasy horror it was going to be like Texas Chainsaw Massacre of Science Fiction. Like, that's what he was going for in this. How brilliant. Um, and yeah, it's wonderful. And one of these other things that, that let me see if I can th- find the quote for you, because it's, it, it's, it's really, really good. And let me see if I can, I had it for you. I promise I will get it soon. <laughs> Take whatever time you need, friend. I will say yeah, while well, you're, while you're looking for it, um, I, I do know that in, well, just in general, Dan O'Bannon, he had a lot of influences creating this story, the screenplay and writing it. Um, and one of the underlying themes is um, sexual assault, you know, because mm-hmm. when you when you think about it, you know, um, when John Hurt is going through uh, the eggs to see what's going on, uh, you know, he this this face hugger invades his personal space and just takes his, his body. And in in reality, isn't that what sexual assault is really all about? Mm -hmm. Just taking control. And there's a lot of uh, allegory between, um, you know, that kind of theming. And I just think that it makes it so much more creepier because it just completely takes control of the entire crew, not to do any spoiler alerts, but you know, it just one organism just destroys everything. Yeah. And, and speaking on that, I I found the quote from really squat squat, really Scott that I I wanted to share. And and I think it's fascinating. And he said, I've never liked horror films before because in the end, it's always been a man in a rubber suit. And he says, well, there's one way to deal with that. The most important thing a film of this type is not what you see, but the effect of what you think you saw. And and that speaks to how much I, I love the Alien movie is it's so much about the atmosphere again and the really long, slow shots of just setting up just the slow pacing of it and... You never really know where the alien is going to be because they do such an amazing job of um, really using the alien's intelligence of of camouflaging itself in its own environment. You know, like if the first time you watch it at the end and you don't see it, you know, snuck in that little corner there. Like, yeah, I mean, you can kind of see it now, but like you see how much of part of a ship it looks like. Um, the set design, everything about the production was awesome. I, I really like slow paced movies like this. And, um, I kind of think this is probably what I think my, my favorite, like cinematography or like set design of any movie I've ever seen. It's, 
it's the every single time I watch it, every single time I'm like, this is just so beautiful. I, everything here looks so lived in. It looks like a mining vessel. It looks so realistic, and, and I don't know. It, it's I, I could I could gush on this honestly forever. Well, um, they did it on purpose. They created yeah. this the set to be very claustrophobic feeling, mm-hmm. so the actors would have that sense of you know a claustrophobia. Well, and it makes sense too because if you're thinking about what the vessel actually is and what they're like purpose of it, you're not going to waste space with big hallways. No, you know, like this is something that people paid like paid money for and and are trying to to really get a return on things. And it also, I believe, um, a little a little paid home like a little uh, little nod to my favorite one of my favorite video games of all time is. And if you haven't played it, you should go back and play it. But Dead Space is very very much yes. so an Alien um, inspired movie, like film. Not film, I'm sorry, a game. Mm-hmm. Like, it's an engineer who gets put on this planet and, like, has to fight through pretty much what xenomorphs, like, are, except for he's, like, human morph. Like, it's great. Um, I, I This is our last James Bond connection, which is really funny. I never thought we would have it, but Yafet Koto <laughs> um, played, uh, I believe, Parker in this movie. And, and he was the villain in Doctor, in uh, Live and Let Die, which <gasps> is a fantastic Bond movie. Um, oh my he god, was doc- you're right. Yeah, he was Dr. Kananga and uh, Mr. Big is like his like slash names and um You just blew my mind, Aaron. I had <laughs> no idea. That's great. And that's a either. great one too. It it really wasn't until I mean I watched it I think I watched it two nights ago or watched it I watched it on Sunday night um or Monday Monday night. Monday night? I can't remember. I watched it a few nights ago mm-hmm. and it wasn't until I watched it and I was been listening to a James Bond podcast and they talked about Yafet Koto a lot and I was just like, "Wait a second, I recognize that name. I'm pretty <laughs> sure he's Living Let Die." And I looked at him like it is and you could the voice is the same. He looks very similar. I mean, this came out Living Let Die came out in 73 and this one came out I believe in 81. No, wait. I'm 78? wrong. No, uh, we're both wrong. Seventy-nine. Yeah, yeah. Um, another really cool thing about this is Harry Dean Stanton. Um, first words to Ridley Scott during his audition was, "I don't like sci-fi or monster movies." And Scott was <laughs> amused and convinced Stanton to take the role after reassuring him that Alien would be actually a thriller more akin to Ten Little Indians, and not really what it came out as. <laughs> Which is great. That that's brilliant. You know, yeah, and, and like. Yeah, it's so good. I love John Hurt's performance in this. He's a terrific actor. I mean, everybody in this is, is amazing. Yeah. You got yeah. Little Baggins in this, and Bobo. it's it's so wonderful. There's so many. There's way too much for me to talk about right now on like what this movie like was supposed to become and how many like scripts it went through and like its connection to Total Recall and some of these other films. Um, but but really, it, it, I urge you out of every single movie I've seen on this list, um, I, I, I urge you to watch Alien if you can. Um, if you like sci-fi at all in the least bit, I think it's a, I think it's a it's a have to watch to, to me. You know, it, it's I revisit it every few months, and it's yeah. You should it's watch terrific. Rift Tracks. It's actually pretty funny. To. It's is, it's pretty is it good. good? Matt, oh, it's do, pretty funny. Do you have this one, Rift Tracks or Rift Tracks on Plex? I mean, I believe that I do have the Rift Tracks on Plex. Cool. I'll take a look at that and see if I can I can get that through. I also need to watch the uh, the uh, commentary on it as well. Um, and also, 
there's two versions of this film out there, and I implore you to watch the theatrical release. Don't watch the director's cut. Um, Ridley Scott actually prefers the theatrical release. The only reason there's a director's cut is because in the early 2000s, um, they wanted to release a anthology set with all of the Alien films, and Fox um, asked uh, Ridley Scott to... Well, they showed Ridley Scott a version of what they were going to add to the scenes, and he didn't like it, so he said, well, let me change that for you to something I actually like if I'm forced to like put something out there that's <laughs> different than the theatrical release. Um, but he considers the theatrical release a perfect film. Like He doesn't have any qualms about that at all. It's exactly what he wanted to do. Um, the theatrical release is actually five minutes um, long. It's actually one minute longer than the director's cut, so you're actually missing a minute of um, some of the original when you, mm. when you go with the director's cut. And so most of the time, I, I like director's cuts of things, but in this case... Uh, definitely watch the uh, theatrical release because that's how it was intended. And it actually removes a couple of really important, really non-sequitur scenes that you just don't need in there um, for you. Um, but uh, unlike Aliens, James Cameron's film, he actually uh, employs you to watch the special edition because that's his favorite version of that. I had that same thought. And so, <laughs> yep. Which I actually just watched today. And oh, I watched fun. Alien 3 today too. Uh, and... You cannot watch anything but the special edition of Alien 3 because the original theatrical release is just a garbled mess. And I don't know what David Fincher did to that, but it wasn't good. <laughs> All right. Yeah. That I'm going to talk that. about that forever. Do you have anybody else have any um, loving words towards Alien that they want to share? Uh, great movie. <laughs> yeah, ju- just, just that without spoilers, uh, there's a character that when the face hugger uh, finally comes off of their face, in reality, it impregnated the person and out comes the alien through the chest. Well, the, when they were filming that that scene where the alien is coming out of the chest, um, the actors had no idea what was going to happen. They just said that the actor was going to be writhing and in pain and that they needed to attend to him. And out of oh, no. That's- and out of nowhere, that alien pops out of his chest, blood splurts out. And later, apparently, Veronica Cartwright, either she fainted or she felt faint because they had absolutely zero idea that that was going to happen. So when you watch that again, when you watch it again, you see that little pop, that first pop that happens. There's a moment of silence. That's actually the actors being shocked that that had just happened because it was not intended for them to know. So I just I just love that little bit. That's awesome. That's my favorite little fun fact we've had today. Absolutely. Uh, It was their genuine reaction. That's that's terrific. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I like all of that. Um, I had something else to add to it one more time, but I'm not. I don't think there's anything else. I love it. I think you should go watch it, and um, it's probably my favorite movie I've ever seen, except for one that we talked about last week. So you can listen to the podcast last week. Mm-hmm. Um, Fabby, <laughs> what is your final film? All right. Um, you're going to do a lot of editing on this episode, I'm sure. I'm so sorry. <laughs> but um, so my final film, and I'm not going to say it's my number one, like we said. It's just they're all, they're like my children. I can't just pick yeah. my favorite. But this is uh, a very, very good one. 1981's American Werewolf in London. Directed and written by John Landis. Uh, quick summary, if you guys have never seen this film, I urge you so, so much to watch it. Quick summary. I have not seen it. Yep. Two American backpackers uh, visit London. Their names are David and Jack on a trip while 
um, while they're there, a werewolf, well, they don't know it's a werewolf quite yet, and it uh, attacks them, killing Jack in the process, but maiming David. And David questions his sanity and if he'll turn into a werewolf by the full moon. So the thing about this movie, it's, it's the perfect horror comedy hybrid. Like I mentioned, John Landis directed it, and he is known for uh, Animal House. Uh, is it Henry or Harry and the Andersons? Harry and Harry. the Hendersons. Yeah. That- Jeez. <laughs> Should have thought about looking that up. But also anyways. a horror monster movie. Right? <laughs> uh, well, yeah, if you really look at it that way, absolutely. Um, and he also directed the mu- the music video of Thriller, the Michael Jackson song, uh, which another tie into that music video. So not only did John Landis direct it, but the... Makeup, oh, wow. the makeup effects artist for American World for London also did the makeup effects for uh, Thriller. Um, so I just think that that's a little uh, Rick Baker, by the way, that's his, his name. I mean, if you don't know who Rick Baker oh, is, yeah, he's done absolutely everything. Uh, he's just amazing. Men in Black, Nutty Professor. Um, and for this film, um, th- it actually created the first ever Oscar award for best makeup. Um, the Oscars were given a lot of flack for the year before for the Elephant Man for not receiving an award for it. Instead, they got an achievement award, but people felt that it was unfair that there was no special effects or a makeup award. So American Werewolf in London was really what created that um, the title. And Rick Baker was the first to receive that award. Um it was actually written back in 1969 and John Landis shelved it for so many years because so many people, they felt it was either too comedic for horror or too frightening to be a comedy. They just didn't understand that hybrid. And I think it's just so brilliantly done where there's just these two best friends, they're backpacking, they're having a blast, just doing what they want to do. And they come across a bar And they're all joking around with the people in there. And all of a sudden, it's just like laugh, laugh, laugh. And all of a sudden, they point out, what's that star on the wall for? And it's just dead silent in the bar. (laughs) And it's just like that moment. Like, just that that little moment is that perfect balance of comedy and horror. And it's just one. And it's literally just in the beginning. But the... Besides the humor and besides the horror about it, the special effects to create this werewolf, it took so much effort for Rick Baker to create this. Actually, so he was um, he was going to help work on a different film that actually came out the same exact year, another werewolf movie called The Howling. But apparently, according to John Landis, Rick Baker owed him a favor. So he was able to get Rick Baker at the last second just to pull him to his project. So Rick Baker ended up leaving his protege to finish off The Howling, which came out in the exact same year, directed by Joe Dante. Um, In comparison between the two werewolf movies, I got to give the edge to American Werewolf in London because those characters are fun. The storyline is great. The horror, like the, the, the special effects, like the transformation scene alone for the werewolf is beautiful and apparently it wasn't (laughs) so i laughed when i heard about this apparently they only did 
the transformation scene, if not in one take, maybe like a couple takes. And then John Lannis was like, all right, we got it. And Rick Baker was like, uh, but I put in a lot of work for it. You don't want to do like a couple more like shots of it. No, no, no. We got all the shots. We're good. And Rick <laughs> Baker was just like, okay, I guess. So I put in all that work. And apparently they weren't going to put the transformation scene as, as long as it was, but because the transformation was so beautiful and articulate and artistic. Like they kept the transformation longer, like the, the legs getting grow, um, growing longer, the arms and fingers, like everything. And good on David Naughton for playing a transformation as brutally honest as one can be, because you got to imagine transforming into a completely different creature has got to be painful. I mean, like, beyond painful. And he just really, like, pulls it out of you. You just feel so bad for him as he's transforming into this werewolf. And, oh, it's just so good. And <laughs> well, last fact about American Werewolf in London. Uh, it was actually the first film in 15 years that they uh, London allowed um, uh, them to film on Piccadilly Circus um, because John Landis... Uh, invited a bunch of the the London police officers to watch his other movie, Blues Brothers. And they loved it so much that they allowed him to have two nights to film in Piccadilly Circus. Uh, And that had just never happened in a very long time in uh, Hollywood or just film history. So anyways, love, love, love American Werewolf in London. I actually have a tattoo of it. And I met David Naughton and he said he really loved the the artwork. It looked really good. So it's just tops for me (laughs) (laughs) Uh, that's wonderful it it, it's i'm ashamed to say it it's the only movie on all of our lists that i actually have not seen yet Uh, (gasps) and i don't know i don't know how i i've i've been friends with you for so long and not not have seen this movie well Um, you need to fix that that's the only way to save this friendship i will fix it this weekend (laughs) i I will absolutely watch this movie this weekend i've seen the first like so there you go Yes, you guys are welcome for that. Um, Thank you very so, much. <laughs> it's all right. You guys give me shutter. I think it's a fair trick. <laughs> That's true. Um, yeah, I watched like the first 30 minutes of this and I I was enthralled with it. I just was so tired and I think I was actually kind of sick when I was watching it. So I just kind of oh, passed no. out. Um, and But yeah, it's absolutely one one that I, I will I will be watching this weekend for sure. Um, I know, Matt, you love this movie too a lot, right? Yes, this is uh, actually one of my favorite uh, creature features. Um, so it's definitely definitely up there. Pretty much everything Fabi said, I uh, couldn't couldn't have said it any better. Uh, it's a great mix of genres. Uh, the characters are rich. Uh, it keeps you engaged. It's a great movie. Yeah, absolutely. All right, folks, we have one more left, and it is the illustrious Matt. Would you like to serenade us with your final film? Evil Dead 2, 1987. Whoop, whoop. Oh. Yes. As you can imagine, it is a sequel. It is probably one of the better ways that a sequel can be done. Essentially, um, Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell back in... Well, the the film was released in 1981, but they uh, essentially... They made a short uh, called, uh, I believe, Within the Woods. I think that's what it was called. 
One second. Yeah, it was back in the 1970s that they 1978. Released it. Yeah, so right. uh, essentially, Bruce Campbell um, and some friends go to a cabin. They find a book with uh, basically uh, demon resurrection passages. They read from it and they get possessed. So essentially, what happened was within the woods was a short. It was about 30 minutes long. That they that Sam Raimi and Campbell produced uh, to get funding to make Evil Dead. Uh, they obviously got the funding to make Evil Dead. They made Evil Dead and The Evil Dead, which came out in 1981. And so for a sequel, what they essentially wanted to do, because the sequel came out six years later in 1987, they had a, a much bigger budget. Uh, they had more, you know, so they had more funding. Uh, they had more resources as opposed to a group of kids out there with rented film equipment and some fog machines in the middle of the woods. And the first, I want to say, the first bit of the movie, I'd say probably maybe 10 minutes, kind of acts as a remake. But it's not really a remake. It's more of like a, you know previously on the evil dead it basically catches you up it catches uh, everybody up to speed on evil dead 2 because it literally takes place right after um the end of the first movie now footage from the first movie was not actually uh they could not legally use it so that's why they had to refilm it so essentially that is why a lot of people look at it as a uh, remake because they had to reshoot some of the uh, early footage just to uh, keep you caught up with what happened in the first movie. And with the Evil Dead, with Evil Dead Two, there are several things that are pretty cool about this movie. So there's so much blood in this movie that they had to actually use different colors to avoid an X rating. Uh, so there's red. <laughs> And there's wow. also some scenes where the blood is black. And I thought that that was kind of uh, kind of cool. It also kind of adds to uh, the very slapstick uh, humor to the movie. It's it's kind of like American Werewolf in London and in that it's very comedic. It's still it's still a horror movie. Um, but they Sam Raimi took a lot of inspiration from. Uh, the Three Stooges for and other sort of uh, slapstick comedy for his movies, and anybody that has seen a Sam Raimi or Bruce Campbell movie can can tell that. So Sam Raimi actually credits Stephen King for um, making the sequel possible. Um, Raimi wasn't able to actually acquire enough money to fund it, and Stephen King was a huge fan of the original. In fact, he actually has a quote the most ferociously original horror film of the year on the <laughs> first Evil Dead poster. And basically he was able to, you know, get in contact with some financiers that have helped him, helped him in previous projects to give uh, Raimi the need the money that he needed. Also the interior of the cabin was filmed actually in a gymnasium of a high school. So I thought that was kind of yeah, cool. That's cool. Mm -hmm. That is so fun. Didn't we see the shed on we the outside? When um, we, yes. Yes, when we went to the Dawn of the Dead um, uh, reunion in Monroeville Mall, they actually 
rebuilt the shed from the original pieces and had that on on display. So we were able to see that. So that was really fun. Mm-hmm. That was uh, really cool. That's awesome. <clears throat> I don't. I know I've seen this one because I've seen it with you, but I don't remember much of it. Uh, but I actually, I was during our last hour and a half that we were <laughs> we were talking after I finished uh, Poltergeist. That's I put on the Evil Dead. Nice. Uh, and you I know, watched I was going to actually uh, say that, but then we kept talking and I forgot about it. <laughs> I know. I'm probably going to cut that part out of the podcast anyway, so <laughs> listeners, you don't get to hear that. Right. It doesn't flow flow all that well anymore. Um, yeah. I, I urge people, and I know I've said this a little bit, but to please go watch something with Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell in it. Even if you can't get to the Evil Dead, get something. Uh, I think They're a treasure. I, oh, sorry. I think what I love about these films, and it's just with like a lot of Sam Raimi films, but mainly the Evil Dead series, is that he basically pushes the actors to their limits. I mean, like they are flying mm-hmm. around and hurting themselves and uh, twisting ankles and getting all bloody. Like they, There are no stunt doubles for these films. It's really them. And a great uh, representation of that, especially is uh, Bruce Campbell. I mean, he really goes above and beyond for his character. And it's just... Re- and I think his... You know, the first Evil Dead, he wasn't the Ash Williams that the series knows now and evil dead 2 is that that beginning of his character very um very full of himself but also he knows he's the savior of the world and he needs to protect the world from the the undead or these deadites and he you know of course with his amazing like uh taglines like groovy or Hail to the King, baby, which I know that's an army of darkness, but before someone corrects me, but you know, things like that, it's, it just makes the movie so much more enjoyable. Like the, the, the makeup effects and special effects for evil dead is already creepy on itself. But then you add the campiness of Bruce Campbell's just genius acting and it just blows you away. Like everything about it is so good. Yeah, yeah, it's a absolutely. it's a very very entertaining series, and the, the remake that came out in 2013 was actually uh, very well done, um, considering that they actually had a pretty good advantage uh, over most movies that are remade. Because uh, the thing about the Evil Dead movies is their slapstick and the comedy inserts just kind of make it more of like a tongue in cheek movie, whereas. Um, a lot of older horror movies that get that got a lot of remakes at the uh, the turn of the century, they were actually trying. <laughs> Not to say <laughs> that Sam Raimi wasn't trying, but he was having fun with it. Like they're not one hundred percent serious horror movies. Um, they try to make you, they try to scare you, but also make you laugh. Uh, and mm-hmm. I think that he's, he's very um, very successful with with that. For those of you who hated Spider-Man 3, uh, if you watch Evil Dead, you could definitely tell his uh, directed <laughs> influences in Spider-Man 3. Um, I think he just does a lot of his cutaways, his like uh, very abrupt um, shots. They all, I feel Dreams. like, stem from Evil Dead. Yeah, it's just like, I feel like it all just stems from I mean, there that- and... We all love Peter Parker's dancing. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's definitely a very Sam Raimi kind of directing, and it kind of, you see it first at Evil Dead. So 
Well, Evil Dead 2. Yes. I love all of it. Excellent. Anything else anybody has to say on the Evil Dead? Nope. I pretty much got it all. Perfect. All right. That's it. Those are our lists, everybody. Please go out and watch all of them. Um, I know we teased a little bit of talking about our honorable mentions, but I think we're at the point in time where what I'd like to do is if you have a a quick list of what your honorable mentions are, just read the titles and that's pretty much it. And we'll kind of sign off after that. Um, And so I'll go first as we have my almost made it were uh, and these are kind of in order of of almost making it. Um, And so trick or treat saw sleepaway camp club dread halloween one and two a nightmare um, nightmare on elm street and the birds oh those are good we're, we're, we're all mine that really were close to making the list but the other ones kind of just eke them out just a little bit mm-hmm. uh, uh go, oh, go, go ahead, on fabs okay um my honorable mentions are actually the first evil dead reanimator the shining the original Wolfman from 1941 and uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, a lot of other films were cut from this list, but this this was kind of like in battle with my top five. So I just kind of kept it to those. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Uh, so I home, actually Matt. several of my so as far as my um, honorable mentions, uh, actually Black Christmas was on there. Um, Fabi, you said a couple of them, uh, my bloody Valentine, 1981, which you can actually view on Amazon prime. That's a good one. Awesome. Movie. And let's see here. Oh, and, uh, Friday the 13th, two and three are probably my favorites. And six. <laughs> there's a great two. It's tough. There's a lot of movies to yeah. like. There are, there are so many good movies out there and so many good horror movies and, and, you know, just take all of these with our Arnold mentions, our top fives, go back, watch a few of them, pick them out, send us which ones are your favorite. We've pretty much given you an exhaustive list of, of what to watch this um, spooky season. <laughs> so, I mean, if, if you've seen a lot of these, try to pick out the ones you haven't yet or revis- revisit the ones you have just because they're just great films and revisiting sometimes can, you can catch things you may not have caught the first time. And they're all a joy to watch. And that's kind of a juxtaposition of what they are. But like, really, these are a joy for all of us to watch as as interesting as the the topic and genre they are. They just they bring us a lot of happiness. And so um, we want to share that with you. And and we'll be we'll be back for sure. Um, before we leave, I want to say thank you to both Matt and Fabi for being on this. This would not have been the same episode without you two. And so I really appreciate you. You being here and, and adding your expertise to our topics and giving us some some really quality content we have here. So thank you so much. We're going to have you back again. Thank you so much for yeah. having us. This was such a yeah, blast. This was, yeah, thank you. This was excellent. And we'd be happy Absol- to do uh, more in the future. For sure. Perfect. We will we will be in touch. I talked to Matt probably, you know, a few once every few days. I think we're in <laughs> contact. So Usually we're talking about something, so I will definitely reach out and see um, and give you guys a schedule of, I think, what we're doing. I absolutely want to have you on the the episode where uh, we have the Battle Royale tournament style. I think that would be so much fun, and I think sure. I-, I need some folks that know more about these villains than I do. Um, 
And so I think it's going to be really try to narrow down to to who we may consider the greatest uh, um, horror movie villain of all time. Uh, as much as our opinion doesn't matter, that's what we're going to try to do. <laughs> exactly. Uh, uh, until then, though, thank you all so much. This has been Infinite Pulp. Um, do you guys have any um, places on the social medias that you want to shout out to people where where you want to be found? I mean, you may have social media. You may not want to be found. You may want to be found. But now's your chance to to plug yourself. If if you have an Instagram or Twitter or any kind of place that that you want people to go follow. Um, we're pretty boring people, but I, I'll <laughs> go ahead and give, I'll go ahead and give my Instagram um, name. It's Fabster's Monster. It's a play on words for Frankenstein's monster. So it's F A B S T E R S Monster. Perfect, Matt. I'm even gonna let you go because I know you don't want to be found any place. Right. Um, I don't even have an Instagram. I don't think. Actually, yeah. <laughs> I think I do. I just don't open it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a picture of me oh, with a cat great. from like 2012 is on there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just thumbs up with the cat in your lap. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm smiling. I don't know. <laughs> uh, awesome. You can find me. Everywhere at Damped Mango, DMP3D Mango. That is Twitter and Instagram. Um, you can find Infinite Pulp at Twitter. And then we also have an email address, podcast at infinitepulp.com. Send us anything you want to, questioning topics. I haven't checked it in a long time. So if you send something in the last uh, couple months and I haven't responded at all, that's totally on me. I'm going to pull it up as soon as we get done here and see if there's anything um, worthy of taking a look at or if you all have just been not participating um, so we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens next, but next week we are going to continue with horror stuff. Um, I actually know what we're talking about next week. If you want to give me just a hot minute to look it up, I can tell you exactly what our topic is going to be. Cause I have all of October planned out for everybody. Um, releasing next week is going to be, that's the wrong. No, stop it. So right now I have the creepiest fictional characters. So essentially that's going to be maybe Max and I see if there's anybody else who wants to join us. But we're essentially going to kind of prelude our battle royale to who we think are the creepiest fictional characters. And then probably I'll release our tournament bracket on that episode as well. So the next episode after that, we will actually have that battle royale. So next week we are going to be arguing about who we think is the creepiest and why we think they're the creepiest. Um, And then after that. We're going to get into uh, who would be the best villain of all time. And so we'll we'll go from there. And again, thank you so much for joining us on this long, long ride. <laughs> I know it's been well over the time that we usually record. But as I said earlier, if I had my way, this is kind of what every podcast would be the length of. But um, people have lives and they don't have time for this. So um, if you want to skip around, go for it. If you don't, if you want to put it in your background while you're doing something and not listen to us at all, that's what we're here for. That's the exact kind of podcast we want to be is just the white noise to whatever else you're doing. And so thank you again so much for everybody joining us today. We'll, we'll see you next week and have a great time. Well, thank you so much for having us and thank uh, thanks for listening. Pleasant dreams.